And I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and, in essence, catch up on our cinema. So it is the month of July 2021, and by golly, it's Ladies' Night. Hello, ladies. Uh, essentially, what we're going to be doing this month is uh, every week taking a look at a action film headlined by a lady. Uh, so in weeks past, uh, we have covered the works of Michelle Yeoh and Cynthia Rothrock, uh, and we've kind of been cruising through uh, the works of women in film, in action film, that is, uh, kind of decade by decade. But for our, our grand finale here, for our victory lap, uh, we kind of skipped ahead. We skipped the 2000s altogether because that is a whole other can of worms yeah. altogether it is well we we were big time uh we were big on female-led action films in the aughts but there's so many and two major franchises that were like we we those are two separate things and we're not touching kill bill right now yeah so what kyle's alluding to there with those two franchises uh is the the very uh massive coincidence maybe it's a coincidence hopefully it's a coincidence uh of uh the underworld and the resident evil franchise is kind of running parallel to one another both are husband and wife uh director and star efforts uh both are headlined by leading ladies dressed in leather uh oftentimes kicking monsters uh mila jovovich has to kick a dog in the head i think at least in the first three movies at least once um but yeah those franchises ran super long in the tooth to the point that if we if uh, well actually no it's a given we are going to tackle resident evil at some point because i've, I've been a fan of the franchise uh, the video game franchise mostly uh since day one essentially underworld not so much <laughs> um, but uh if we tackle either of those franchises uh I'd probably want to just do the whole thing, you know, just do yeah. the whole fucking thing as opposed to like just do it piecemeal over the course of several years. I'd rather just devote a month to it and be good with it. Uh, and of course, as Kyle mentioned, uh, Kill Bill parts one and two uh, are, of course, extremely good uh, mm-hmm. female led action films from the 2000s. Only problem is they're Quentin Tarantino films. And again, that is a whole nother can of worms. Uh, not only that, it's also two movies, which is quite a bit to ask for. That's a you lot. Know, yeah yeah the guy dog days of summer kind of thing <laughs> you got to hear that it's just too many times it's too many times well, for one month well yeah and and also that's what my brain is saying at the prospect of trying to tear into both quentin tarantino's filmography and two two kill bill movies in mm-hmm. one sitting that, that i might have an aneurysm or something trying to do that um, but yeah, we, we decided uh, that we were probably going to skip the 2000s as a decade. A uh, very important decade for women in action cinema. Obviously, there's tons of movies to pick from. In fact, um, by the time we get to this, the end of this episode, I think it would be neat to just list off some honorable mentions. But our movie for today uh, is David Leach's Atomic Blonde from 2017, uh, headlined, of course, by one Charlize Theron. Uh, and Kyle... Uh, do you want to explain how we decide upon this one? Because yeah. like, you and I both have a, a mutual history with this one. It's funny that we skipped the aughts because those were my formative years of middle school and high school. So I wish I could have just skipped the aughts altogether because that was a terrible time to be alive. Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, we, we went with this one. Um, 
one this is not a this is not a catching up for us i've only seen it the one time and actually i think you watched it one time and we're just like meh and i ended up watching it with steph and i'm like i think you should go back and, and revisit it because i think it might be better than you remember um we floated a few other movies uh around but we're like this one kind of went under the radar for 2017 like i maybe i, I might, might have seen like a trailer and was just like eh, it look, i don't really i'm not into action movies this doesn't really appeal to me but my girlfriend and I just watched it one night. We're like, that was actually a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, uh, like Kyle had said, this is not a catching up uh, for either of us. We have both seen this film. Uh, in my case, I think about four times by now. Um, I do own it. Uh, I and too. I did see this film uh, in the theater. Mm. Uh, at the time, I was uh, my girlfriend was was very big on Charlize Theron as an actress. And I was very, I've always been very big on action cinema. So this was pretty much a guarantee that I was going to have an excuse to watch this movie. And uh, yeah, you're right. The marketing push wasn't extraordinary, but I, I enjoyed it, actually. I, I wouldn't describe it, my my assessment of it, as a meh film. I think the way I told you, and this was, this was when you and I were working together, um, I, the way I explained it was, it was, it was like 10 minutes of utter, utter brilliance uh, in terms of action design. And then the rest of the movie built around it. I, I wasn't entirely sure how I felt about it. Um, but I, I, I defy anyone to look at that 10-minute chunk of the film and say anything bad about yeah, it. You, um, you really can't. Yeah, you really can't. And actually, that's kind of the story of this movie is that every deficit it might have is soundly countered by so many other pluses it has in its favor. Uh, so on the whole, I think it's it's just an enjoyable film, no matter how you slice it, even if, um, as as we'll explain later on, uh, some of the narrative elements are a little flimsy and, and cryptic at best. Um, but yeah, I, Kyle and I decide on this one just because, I, I don't know, it, it comes up in conversation so many times. like, And also it, it just holds the distinction of being one of those movies that... Um, Truth be told, I did come to appreciate just that little bit more because Kyle asked me to reassess it. Um, because, like you said, you you had a, a stronger assessment of it than I did upon initial viewing. But yeah, as I rewatch this film, I think I enjoy it on the whole just that little bit more. Well, action films for me, the bar is set low. So if you can just keep my attention through an action scene, then I'm like, this is worth watching. Because a lot of times... I cannot sit through the fight scenes. I'm usually just like, okay, let's get on with the story. This is okay. Okay, come on. But this, and I think it's important to note who the director is, uh, because when it got to that sequence, I'm like, oh, I was like, when did John Wick come out? John Wick definitely came out before this, but I was just like, this is, I'm getting really strong John Wick vibes here. Uh, John Wick vibes. I'm like, there's a reason for that. Um, this director also did uh, Deadpool 2, and then I'm assuming you probably own uh, Hobbs and Shaw. Oh, you better fucking yeah. believe it. On 4K, baby. I, I, of course. Uh, I think, if do you want to give the folks a spiel while I go for a smoke uh, real quick? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I can try my best. So I had warned Kyle about this uh, up front. I was like, Kyle... I know this comes up a lot on this on catching up on cinema, but um, I got a lot to say about Atomic Blonde, and a lot of it is kind of obscure stuff that uh, you, dear listener, maybe aren't aware of. So uh, this is me taking things for a walk. So sit tight, folks. It's going to get loud. <laughs> <laughs> so 
Uh, yes, this film was directed by David Leach, who, um, funny enough, if you look at his filmography, it's like, you know, Kyle, I think you, I think you and David Leach, like, you might, you might go together pretty well, because mm-hmm. Kyle and I both uh, quite like Deadpool 2, Kyle especially, in fact, um, and Atomic Blonde also, and John Wick. Uh, Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw, uh, not so much. I, I don't think Kyle would touch that with a 10-foot pole. No, not um, even on an airplane. I, yeah, I blind bought it, and it is not the sum of its parts. Uh, it's it is deeply disappointing in a lot of ways, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I the what Kyle was alluding to here was uh, eighty seven eleven. Um, now, if I say that, uh, dear listener, I, I I hope that means something to you. But if it doesn't, uh, basically eighty seven eleven is a uh, it's kind of like an action design house uh, that it it was founded by Chad Stahelski and David Leach. Um, both of whom are former stunt professionals. Uh, in fact, I don't know if they still work on screen in front of the camera. Um, but uh, long story short, uh, the two of them both have extensive stunt and martial arts experience. Chad Stahelski is a very intense individual. Um, he he has done numerous stunt roles over the decades, uh, beginning in the 90s, I believe. Both of them started in the 90s. Um, but they they're most no, known at least early in their filmographies for being um, in the case of Stahelski the stunt double for Keanu Reeves, and in David Leach's case the stunt double for Brad Pitt. Um, so the two of these fellows got together and they created this eighty seven eleven uh, stunt coordination studio. So basically, it's basically a school of thought um, consisting of stunt professionals and stunt coordinators. Uh, who design action scenes for for film productions? So basically, they're they're hired guns who you can bring onto your shoot uh, to punch up your action scenes. Uh, essentially, like you you have your first and your second unit photography. Uh, these guys are like the cream of the crop uh, <laughs> when it comes to second unit or, or action design. Um, and actually, a lot of the people that work for them um, actually have a theory. Uh, in regards to some of the trends we've seen in action movies over the years that um it's it's scheduling that's that's really kind of fucking with the way films are made these days uh, because you only have so many of these cream of the crop individuals and they only have so much time on their calendar each year uh, to to vote to whatever film productions are out there and i want to say it may have been like a like a strategic choice on the part of the disney corporation to take sam hargrave uh, who, as far as I know, is a part of 8711, or at least he's a uh, consistent collaborator of theirs, and kind of lock him the fuck down for several years. <laughs> it's like, we're going to keep this guy so busy, he can't work for nobody else. <laughs> um, so Sam Hargrave uh, is a huge element in the production of Atomic Blonde. I- I'm definitely going to point out more than one instance where where his influence is felt and appreciated. Um, but funny enough, he also... Uh, has, holds the distinction of being the stunt double for Chris Evans, a.k.a. Captain America. Um, he only has one feature directorial debut uh, on under his belt at the moment, like as a as a director. Um, it's that Netflix movie Extraction uh, starring Chris Hemsworth, which I, of all people, have not seen. I'm still kicking myself over that. Uh, my girlfriend does have a Netflix account. I should definitely exploit that and just watch it like off the radar or something, but I'm super excited to check that out just because I I love the idea of somebody going from a stunt person to a stunt double to a stunt coordinator to a fucking director. That that's that's such a cool like upward path uh, to success. 
and uh, it always excites me to see that um and that's kind of the story of 8711 is it's a bunch of people from very very humble beginnings from fucking blood sport two and three that was the first time i ever saw chad stahelski aka the director and kind of like franchise shepherd of the john wick franchise um i saw him working opposite daniel bernhardt in blood sport two and three um and <laughs> like i i can point to a dvd on my shelf and say like hey that guy with the goofy ponytail that gets his ass kicked that's the director of john wick <laughs> um but yeah, Daniel Bernhardt is another. He's uh, one of the more noteworthy members of 8711. Um, Kyle, at this point, I bet you, even you, who doesn't you know, have the same passion for this kind of stuff that I do, could recognize him by now just because he is in everything they touch these days. Uh, he, in fact, he was in the first John Wick. I don't remember um, the first John Wick very well. It's been a long uh, time. No, uh, yeah, it, there, a lot of people got shot in the head in between, you know, in yeah. the intervening years. So, yeah, he's it's kind killed, of hard to remember. He's <laughs> killed more people than Rambo at this point, and that's a lot of people. That's that's like a country and a half. Yeah. Easily. Easily. No, he's <laughs> killed, like, Cambodia. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I'll be sure to point out Daniel Pernhardt because uh, he's an actor-slash-martial-artist-slash-stunt uh, performer that uh, is actually kind of the connecting fiber uh, between the two founders of 8711 in the in the form of him having punched both of them in the face at some point early in their career <laughs> um it's how great relationships are formed man <laughs> uh, but yeah that is the story of 8711 and as i had said david leach is a founding member of it and this was one of his earliest uh, directorial efforts if not the earliest uh, he has a he's like uncredited but I think technically he's regarded as a co-director on John Wick he, yeah he's uncredited uh, for John Wick he did direct uh, Deadpool 2 which came out what was that 2018 yeah so this actually was his debut as a yeah. as a solo director good for um, him yeah. I, I mean yeah, yeah. Hope, <laughs> uh, hopefully I didn't bore you too bad with that Kyle same with you dear listener but um, that being said Kyle uh, would you like to attempt to give us a plot summary for Atomic Blunt. Do you want me to do spoiler version or not spoiler version? Fuck it. We, we spoil everything. <laughs> All right. So, spoiler alert, this is Atomic Blonde. So, Charlize Theron, as we find out at the end, is a CIA agent who is uh, undercover as a KGB agent who's undercover as an MI6 agent, and you can swap out the MI6 to KGB uh, in that order, but CIA first. Uh, she has been hired to get a watch back that has important information about a bunch of spies, some of which who are double agents, which MI6 want because they're looking for a specific double agent named Satchel. Uh, she's in charge of that. And uh, I think from there, Mary Mishaps Sue. But that's that's the objective of the film. Yeah, everything that guy just says bullshit. <laughs> so what I heard, Kyle, was basically a combination of uh, Garth's master plan at the end of Wayne's World, mm -hmm. uh, involving satellite yes. relays, um, and uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s speech about blackface in uh, *Tropic Thunder*. Yeah, <laughs> I'm the guy who's supposed to be the other guy. Who's, you you yes. guess? <laughs> well, but it's been a long time since I've seen that one. Shut up. <laughs> I'll simmer it down to what it's supposed to be. Uh, Charlize Theron is an MI6 agent who has been hired to find uh, uh, this watch that has agent's information and try to uh, find out who this 
satchel double agent is essentially that's the job yeah and essentially the reason why i'm drawing so much attention to this is that kyle and i have both agreed that this is this is the film's weakest element yes like i'm trying to belabor the point because good fucking luck following the narrative of this film i mean you you can kind of it's it's kind of like watching a foreign film but without the subtitles you can kind of figure out what's happening but you don't know exactly what's happening I would describe this as a look and a feel movie Mm -hmm. where it's like, I've seen it enough times that I don't need to care about the logistics or or the the hows and the whys in regards to why scenes happen when they do or what characters' intentions are in in numerous scenes. It's just, it just looks good and it sounds good. And at the end of the day, I'm happy. So it it really is kind of like watching a foreign film or almost like a silent film in Mm -hmm. some ways where it's just like, you're there for the really pretty pictures, the really rock solid editing, and my god, the sound, the soundscape they mm-hmm. create in this film is is pretty fucking incredible. Yeah. Uh, dear dear listener, um, if you if you watch this movie, keep your ears and your keep your eyes and your ears open mm-hmm. because uh, there's a lot of ear candy in this movie, and not not just the needle drops either. Mm-hmm. Uh, some super awesome sound effects. That's true. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, um, but yeah, let's let's get to it, Kyle. Run through our cast here. We have Charlize Theron playing Lorraine, uh, but we're gonna probably just refer to them as their actor names because they don't really use like the only person that they reference by name throughout the film is uh, James McAvoy's character. But I've been calling him David. But yeah, James McAvoy plays David. We have John Goodman playing Emmett again. John Goodman, Eddie Marsan <laughs> playing Spyglass, Toby Jones, uh, who I just saw in. Uh, fucking uh captain america um yeah one and two one and two and uh yeah and then delphine played by oh my gosh that's sophia butella (laughs) (laughs) sophia butella who i don't know if her her window of opportunity has closed but it was a good solid couple of years there of just like her agent was doing some henry golding gymnastics or some shit getting her the really awesome roles because she got the kingsman she got the the shitty mummy (laughs) kind of like the shitty beatles but a mummy (laughs) casper noe's film oh yeah casper noe's uh climax there we go i haven't seen it i've heard mixed things about it i actually i actually kind of pushed to do an episode on that but you vetoed me yeah, because I saw the trailer for it, and I'm like, I don't know about that. It didn't, it wasn't the right. I wasn't in the right mood for it. I'm like, I don't know about that. We can do it. I'm down to do it. But uh, no, I mean, the moment is past. That was for fucked up shit month, and we wow. haven't come back to that we, since. But you know, maybe someday we'll see. Uh, no offense to Mr. Noe, but I don't think that that film was gonna touch what we covered in fucked up shit month. Yeah, we we had some we had some like hits and misses in there, but on the whole, I think we did it justice. Like yeah. we we held up to you know fucked up standards. <laughs> she did, but yes, uh, but yeah, no, I don't know if her windows closed because she is just absolutely just gorgeous to look at. So they're gonna just keep trying to find her stuff and listen yeah, to her for I, crying I, out I loud. Know. She's Algerian. Like just just let her talk. It doesn't matter. Yeah, she, Algerian. Um, she she has a dance background, mm-hmm. so um, she isn't asked to do much physically in this movie. But some of her other roles have seen her. Like climax is about a fucking rave, basically, like yeah. a, a dance party gone bad. Um, so I would imagine that she gets to do some shit in there. And then some of her other roles, like Kingsman and the Mummy, she definitely was asked to perform physically. And you can tell, like she's still got some moves. Like, mm-hmm. 
Um, she's just not asked to do much of anything in this movie other than be herself, which yeah. which is just fine. Nothing wrong there. <laughs> um, so yeah, we are. We'll jump into it here. We are on the eve of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, is I think we're so actually it's really kind of a pain in the ass here at the top because Berlin Wall is gonna fall. Do get shot, and then it's like bathtub. Then ten days earlier, we just we do 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 ten days earlier. Yeah. Uh, so one thing that we did not mention, um, and I almost never hear mentioned, so that that's why we didn't really go into much details. That uh, apparently this is based on a graphic novel, not a comic book, a graphic novel um, called "The Coldest City," which was originally the working title of the film. Uh, Anthony Johnston is the author. He's British, apparently. Um, so I don't know if the structure of this film reflects that of the graphic novel. Um, I have seen some storyboards uh, from this movie, but the only sequences highlighted were um, not the interrogation room scenes. Mm. Uh, so I actually had a theory after the first time I watched this movie that um, I was suspicious of the interrogation room stuff, thinking that maybe that was all reshoots or something, where it was like a, a really like slash and burn type of restructuring the film where it's like we couldn't make sense of what we shot so we went back and we basically added toby jones and john goodman to the film to to add cohesion to the to add coherency uh to the narrative as far as i know that's not the case at all it's just a theory i had at the time but uh there is a a detached element that comes from jumping back and forth between the interrogation room and and the narrative as told through uh Lorraine's eyes I guess um, it just it makes it difficult to follow at times kind of jumping back well, and forth in time and place all the time well I think it helps save you it saves you shots too because you can it does yeah because you can stop here now what's this about and then we can cut to well we don't need to worry about what I did next we'll just cut to the next scene basically so yeah speaking of which uh, I did listen to the commentary for this because I do have the the blu-ray on my shelf and every once in a while if I have the disc available to me and it has a commentary uh, in preparation for the show I'd like to listen to that stuff I treat it like a podcast actually usually I don't even look at the screen what's going on but um, David Leach and uh, I don't remember her name but it was a <laughs> absolutely lovely Icelandic woman uh, who served as the editor for the film uh, kind of go back and forth talking about the film. It's really interesting to hear their two different perspectives. And yes, a lot was cut out of the movie. And yes, they did a lot of ADR and a lot of use of the interrogation room footage um, as a means of condensing the story. Because this movie is sub two hours, which is always a always a plus in action cinema. I've only listened to one commentary, an actual commentary for a, a DVD, and it was uh, Fight Club. I don't know why. Oh, wow. Uh, I've never actually, I've never actually listened to one of Finch's commentaries before. It was I, I don't even know what he sounds like to be honest. I think it was Brad Pitt, uh, Helen Bottom Carter, and maybe David Finch. I think it might have been the three of them. Yeah, uh, I would uh, Fincher. I believe. Fincher, sorry, um, yeah, David, David Lynch, <laughs> no, I, I, David Fincher. I, I, that that's exactly what I was trying not to do, and yeah. somehow I still fucked it up. No. Oh, I'm sorry, I heard you uh, do it. I'm like, <laughs> say what he said, because he said yeah. it right. <laughs> I'm sorry, I got us on the wrong tracks. <laughs> I fucked it up for everybody. I'm sorry. Um, I would highly suggest doing it from like movies you're interested in, Kyle. Um, James Cameron's a pretty good commentator. What? Aliens is a good commentary. I like to do me some Ridley Scott, but uh, yeah, I could do. Oh, some. he's 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 great. I'm sure he is hilarious. 
because the way his movies are shot have that like grandiose nature to them mm-hmm. dude he is a cigar chomping dude <laughs> like nice. he just he just laughs along with the movie he's like i don't fucking know what i was thinking <laughs> like like i'll never forget that the alien covenant uh commentary he just like saw this stunt happening where he's like i don't even remember doing that <laughs> that was silly it's like that's your movie <laughs> you put that in theaters oh. uh but yeah, our setting is the Cold War, the very end of the Cold War, uh, in the traditional sense anyway. So we are in East and West Berlin, because uh, they still exist at this moment in time. Uh, and we do open with footage of the famous Ronald Reagan, uh, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall speech. Um, and then uh, the soundtrack is something that absolutely needs to be mentioned uh, for this film, because it is a character unto itself. And... I, when it comes to like uh, jukebox, like needle drops and stuff, like like movies that lean very very heavily on on their soundtrack, like their licensed music library, uh, to to create a f- ebb and a flow with the edits, I'm always wary of that. Like s- licensed music has a time and a place, and if you do it wrong, it could really fuck up your movie. It can cheapen it so harshly, like uh. The Ben Affleck Daredevil movie has some terrible fucking needle drops. Because uh, uh, it's got David some, Ayers. it's got like two thousands rock in it, which is quite possibly the worst music um, in American history. Well, and it's just it's really haphazardly thrown in there, where it's just like there's no there's no agency, there's no emotionality behind the music choice. It's just kind of like who do we have that's cheap, or or who do we have marketing synergy with? It's like Evanescence. It's like, okay, Evanescence. Ugh. Uh, <laughs> yeah thank you for spelling out the thoughts of our listeners yes. um but also the david ayer the theatrical cut of the suicide squad I, I mean suicide squad because there is a movie called the suicide squad coming out very soon uh holy fucking shit they have some of the most on the nose obnoxious sound, like song choices imaginable this soundtrack however is rock solid um it's all contemporary music of the era and the choices of songs are really awesome but more than that uh they do a really cool trick with the sound editing uh where almost almost every song in this movie if not all of them uh is rendered diegetic um Mm -hmm. by by props in the room and our first instance of that is a was it blue monday i think is the opening song uh, it's the how does it feel yeah (laughs) yeah because i was gonna Um, say next is cat people by david bowie Oh, yeah. That, who could forget that one? But mm. the Blue Monday, uh, the very first instance, and I'm not going to do this for every song, but just to demonstrate. Basically, we have Sam Hargrave, uh, who I mentioned up top, is our stunt coordinator and actually the camera operator uh, during the most famous stunt sequence in the movie. Uh, he's running down some like alleyways, and he's fleeing from somebody in his undies in a bathrobe uh, in, the, in the middle of the night in snow. And then he gets hit by a car, and this is a really cool mix of both like a physical stunt and a little a little bit of CGI doctoring. Um, nasty looking bump, by the way. <laughs> no matter how you slice it, a man a man got flung on a wire into a into a window. But um, the song is playing over him running, um, and then the the sound levels change when the the driver of the car opens their door and closes it, thereby signaling that. Not only was the song part of the movie, like the movie soundscape, it was also playing in that car. Um, and they do shit like that constantly throughout the movie, and it, it adds a layer of class to things that makes it feel more deliberate 
and I really appreciate it, Kyle. Mm-hmm. Um, but tell me, Kyle, is the man who hit Sam Hargrave with a car, is this a Game of Thrones cast member? Uh, great question, Trevor. Thanks for asking that question. Uh, <laughs> I don't recognize him, but he does look like he could have played a wildling or someone at the wall, like just as an uncredited just background character, but he doesn't look like an actual Game of Thrones person. Well, Kyle, I have an answer for you. Is it? And you're you're not going to be super surprised. Um, so the reason I asked this question is because uh, Kyle has this thing where uh, he, uh, would you call it a theory or is this just a statement of fact? No, that, if that it, post if it, post Game of Thrones actors ha- like got the shit end of the stick. <laughs> yeah, if you didn't get out like Jason Momoa, then yeah, you're pretty much fucked because if if any Game of Thrones person is headlining a movie. You can pretty much skip that movie. Yeah, the new mutants didn't exactly work out for the the tiny gal with the eyebrows. Yeah, and, no, uh, no. Sophie Turner went to work for Quibi, which Quibi is no more, and probably lasted six months at most. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Kit Kit uh, Kit Harrington, I think, is due to be in the MCU though, so he's okay. probably gonna be fine. He's charismatic. I like him. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's the, it's the main people, any of the main characters, uh, a couple of them have, uh, uh, made their way into star Wars. Brienne of Tarth, uh, made her way, I believe into episode seven, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then Kale- uh, not Kale- yeah, Khaleesi, uh, she is in solo. She's been in a couple of things. Uh, she was also, yeah, ter- she did that Henry Golding, uh, rom-com that I guess. Yeah. Okay oh yeah. Watch you watch that this Christmas. <laughs> you should watch it. No, uh, I, I think I've been spared because my girlfriend, like yours, does watch all of those, but she she knows better than to like strong arm me into watching them. So she just does that on her time, much like I'll watch Extraction on my own time. <laughs> I'll I will I will humor her when I've had some drinks. If I've had a few drinks, then I'm like, all right, let's do the stupid Christmas Netflix, the stupid Netflix Christmas movies. Let's do it. Uh but the reason I asked uh, was not just because I was curious, but um, I actually had a reason, and that was because, like I said, the editor doing the commentary, she was Icelandic, oh. and she pointed out that this fella who plays Bakhtin, who's kind of supposed to be a major antagonist, but he's rendered uh, completely obsolete less than halfway through the movie, uh, is played by an Icelandic actor, and she said there were many other Icelandic actors in the film um, and that got me thinking Game of Thrones, and he plays a character named Lem Lemon Cloak. Yeah, I have no in, idea. Uh, it he, he the character doesn't have a Wikipedia entry, and apparently he was in two episodes of Game of Thrones. Uh, so yeah, uh, <laughs> big big burly Icelandic man uh, probably has a little bit of a stunt background. Was in fact in Game of Thrones, but yeah, he gets out of this vehicle and he exchanges words with Sam Hargrave, who's putting on a pretty solid british accent uh he is american uh and he shoots sam hargrave right in the face so he mm. kills captain america's stud double uh within the first two minutes of the movie um but more importantly he steals his watch uh which serves as one of the principal MacGuffins uh in the film um and we get this really cool edit where buckton the uh the big icelandic fella picks up uh cap stunt double and tosses him into the into like a river um, and the splash is kind of like timed with Charlize Theron entering the film by emerging from an ice bath uh, yeah. in some really cool, like bathed in blue lighting. And that is a signature of the look of this movie is uh, we are going all in on the super ultra gaudy colored lighting, but it fucking works. It works. I love it. 
it i i do too it's so weird because it, it should be obnoxious but it kind of fucking works this is gonna sound creepy and weird but uh it might be the neons but and eh, no, never mind, <laughs> 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 never mind. <laughs> what was that I, i'm like the color palette and like the neons i don't know it's it, it reminds me of just like opening up a condom i don't know why <laughs> there's just it, it's a weird it's a weird connection i mean i've seen some of those off-brand condoms that have like the bright fluorescent green like lettering on them and stuff i could see that yeah it's it just reminded me of that um <laughs> you should write really to david weird. leach and tell him that it's like you know your movie man makes me think of condoms makes me think of makes condoms me, Makes me makes me feel like opening a condo. <laughs> it's it's just one of those weird connect. Like you'll just be watching something, and my my brain will connect to something that has nothing to do with it. Uh, but yeah, so we get Charlize in her ice bath, and she is looking rough. She looks like she has been in a car accident or five. Um, she's taking an ice bath. Uh, she, her drink of choice. Uh, she's pouring over the side of the bathtub as she's getting out is a glass full of Stoli uh, uh Stoli vodka which uh, she drinks throughout the film. Um, we kind of, she's just kind of like working her way through the bathroom. Uh, she pulls out a picture of the guy that we just got, we just saw uh, get shot uh, by the car. Um, and it looks as though she's about to compose herself. Uh, this is where we get Cat People by David Bowie. Um, was there anything else important in this apartment scene before she gets to the debrief? Uh, not so much. Uh, there's a little bit of a montage after she puts on her clothes and steps out to the street, though. That's It's a little self-indulgent, but we're being introduced to the character, and we still have the opening credits to show. So this is basically our opening credits set to, like Kyle had said, David Bowie's uh, Cat People. And it's her just, you know, dressed to the nines, walking to the office, uh, covered in bruises, by the way. And uh, we did get an on-screen title telling us that her emerging from this ice bath is 10 days after Sam Hargrave was shot and thrown in the river. Um, but yeah, she burnt that photo of him, which I guess is supposed to impart to us, the viewer, that there's some sort of emotional connection between the two. Um, but maybe this is her kind of trying to cast that off to some extent. But... Yeah, she heads to the office. I want to say this is probably uh, MI6. Um, and she meets with kind of the, the top brass, I guess you'd call it, um, which consists of a couple of fellas. Uh, Toby Jones is the one that jumped out at me the most just because he's Toby fucking Jones, and he, he always stands out no matter where you place him. Funny enough, I actually wasn't aware that he was British, Kyle. Oh, really? Um, I think, yeah, I've seen him in enough roles where he spoke without his accent that i it just never was apparent to me so that's a good sign that means that he covers his accent really well um and the other fella uh who serves as kind of the um uh, the person stationed above toby jones is played by james faulkner who has one hell of a fucking voice uh his, his code name is c so i guess uh they kind of go by james bond logic here um, but yeah, she's immediately sat down in a, a t interrogation room, which serves as kind of our home base uh, for the narrative. We cut back and forth between her retelling of the tale of how the fuck she got all those bruises, um, beginning with her, you know, journeying journeying to Berlin, um, and back to this interrogation room over and over and over again. But yeah, it's uh, John Goodman and Toby Jones uh, serve as the two fellas uh, sitting in front of her, and then we have C. Uh, on the other side of the mirror, it's a two-way mirror, um, kind of overseeing things. Um, 
but yeah, we're just kind of setting the stage with this bit here. And I think the way she got her mission uh, is explained prior to this. So obviously before she heads off to Berlin and uh, we see her obviously not covered in bruises because this is before all that shit went down. And we kind of have a very loose explanation given as to the plot of the film. Um, and already you can hear it on my voice. I'm having trouble piecing together exactly what information is be being relayed to us and what's important or not. But we get lots of uh, buzzwords and, and names thrown at us. Like Bakhtin, of course, we saw him earlier shoot Sam Hargrave and take his watch. Uh, we're told that the watch houses uh, the equivalent of like the Mission Impossible knock list. So it's like all the secret identities of all active agents of the field. Uh, we also get uh, Spyglass thrown out there, who's uh, played by uh, Eddie Marsan, who was featured on this show not too long ago uh, mm -hmm. with The World's End. Always, always happy to see him. Um, but basically, yeah, we have a situation where uh, a KGB guy, Eddie Marsan, is trying to defect. Uh, he claims to have the agent list as well. So we have both a MacGuffin in the form of a watch and a man uh, who both are very valuable uh, to MI6. And because Charlize Theron has a connection to Sam Hargrave, they send her into the deep end to go fucking sort shit out. But um, after all that nonsense, we're introduced to James McAvoy, who, Kyle, man, I don't know. I haven't seen him in a whole lot, but I really like James McAvoy. He, like, I'm always impressed by him. He's very likable, yes. And I, I really like this role. I think he's awesome in this movie. Um, he... Uh, Split, I think it was... I didn't really care for the movie. He's fun in it, but he's also doing so much in the movie. Like, if they just would have had him do just a little bit less, I think it would have been a little bit better. Um, but yeah, I've, I've seen a few things with him. Um, I think I saw pieces of him in Wanted. I saw bits and pieces of that movie, but that was before he was a, even a thing. Um, yeah, I saw that in the theater. I think I told this story to Brad from the Cinema Speak podcast that I was out with my friends, and it was uh, it came down to a choice, a W movie in the theater. It was either Wally or Wanted. Yeah, you mentioned that. And, yeah, yeah, and they picked son of a bitch. He picked Wanted, and That's to this insane. day, I haven't seen Wally, and it's supposed to be one of the better Pixar movies. So, do you want yeah, to cry? Wanted? Because you're gonna cry. Uh, yeah, that's what I've heard. That's what I've heard. But w Wanted, literally the only good thing to come out of that movie is uh, Danny Elfman has a good song in it. Uh, and, oh, yeah, Morgan Freeman says the phrase, this motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Shoot this motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Haven't heard him talk like that in a long time. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to watch that. Uh. No, you, you don't need to. There's, there's a movie called Filth. Uh, starring James McAvoy, that it's long been on my watch list. It, it, it's him playing a despicable like British cop that just mm. it looks like a lot of fucking fun. I can see um, that. And I like that uh, in in this era when when he was taking this role, you can tell he was getting ready for Split because he's fucking jacked. Mm -hmm. um, so he did the Tom Hardy thing where it's like, hmm, I put on all this Bane weight. I should probably do movies that require Bane weight. Physicality, so it's like, hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's like, hmm, maybe I should shoot Warrior around the same time. Hmm, maybe I should shoot that Lawless movie around the same time. Because he's not naturally going to be that big all the time. Yeah. So you could tell James McAvoy is just like, I'm just, I'm in shape right now, so I may as well take advantage of it. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty great in here. He's the one talking to uh, Spyglass. He's like, hey, uh, I handed the watch off. Now you have to take my family across. He's like, I never got the watch. He's like, well, that's not my problem. He's like... 
I'm not doing shit until I get the watch. So basically, we're at a, a standstill. He's not going to take him, and we don't have the watch. So now he's got to find the watch. Yeah, I I like the way they describe that. Uh, David David Percival is a uh, James McAvoy's character's name. He's a British agent, but they describe him as having gone native. Um, as in, he's been hanging out in East and West Berlin, uh, kind of hanging out with the youth movement, with the revolutionaries, kind of. And now he's just basically one of them. <laughs> so he's he's kind of like a smuggler of contraband. Mm-hmm. And when we're introduced to him, it's at this like raucous underground punk party. Um, and Eddie Marsan's kind of just on a textural level. It's really funny seeing him in that group because <laughs> he sticks out like a sore thumb. He doesn't even look like a dad who would be there looking for somebody there. He looks like an IRS agent there uh, who's lost. <laughs> like, I took a wrong turn. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to know where the, the toilet is. <laughs> where is the toilet? <laughs> um... But yeah, so uh, he's talking to him, and he said, this is where he tells him that uh, Spyglass has memorized the spy list. He's memorized every name that's on that list. Yes, yes. He tells him that that's his bargaining chip, essentially, is that he wants to defect, and this is his way of doing it, where it's like, hey, even if you don't have the watch, I I do have the information you need. Uh, It's essentially a duplicate of it, so just my existence is a threat. So it's a little bit of a threat and also a bargaining chip, but um, in the midst of all this, there's a raid that goes down uh, at the party. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the way, Bill Bill Skarsgård, I believe, it's kind uh, of a character. AKA Pennywise the Clown. He's not worth mentioning, really. But yes, he he's is. Not re- he's not m- worth mentioning, but it's interesting that this was like right before the first It movie came out. So this was like. Con- hey, this was this at like is- the same time because that came out in 2017. Yeah, yeah it, it was. The timing was very, very good uh, because it, it's a nothing role, but he, he's an important face that attracts your eye he, he's a goofy looking guy yes yeah. <laughs> um, he's part of the scars guards yeah uh, who own approximately half of cinema because they're, they're just in everything we're going yeah i mean uh stellan is uh in the mcu and he's with lars von trier so it's just like he's he's literally on both sides of the spectrum uh, as far it, as film. I, they need to make like a, a hatfields and mccoys but that's the scars guards and the gleasons <laughs> i've seen a lot I mean, we're going through the mcu right now I've, there's been a lot of scars guard in the last 72 <laughs> hours um uh, yeah but yeah this is where we get uh uh james mcavoy leaving he's got to get back to his little tunnel and this is where he fucks up a couple of cops we're just going to demonstrate that you know he's really capable of uh getting shit done yeah he only has a couple of physical beats in this movie but, but again i really like him as an actor and i suspect he's probably well equipped to do this kind of stuff yeah it's like i was impressed he held he has like three shots of action in this movie and it's like he's got good lines man mm-hmm. like like he he hits his marks and he's got a snap to his moves it's like i think he's very comfortable doing this he's, like may, i'd like to watch him do an action role someday he's very unique because even if he's being a, a scoundrel like you still like him but he does have that look where he can be very menacing like if in the right role he could be very sinister no i think that's an intentional bit on his part i think he knows that he has that that tool set where he he is a scoundrel but you, he still has that like devilish charm to him mm. and in fact that like uh, the commentary revealed that originally the character was meant to be like a red herring like they weren't meant to be of ill intent 
but it was him who got the role and kind of vetoed like well he didn't veto but he he lobbied uh to have the character actually be a scumbag hmm. and i guess i guess he won out in the end uh the script revisions were done independent of him but it worked out but he's in general he's just a very physical performer well, like like he he really throws himself physically into his roles you can see that in split where he adjusts his posture and his his body language um, but I'm sorry. What were you saying, Kyle? Uh, I was gonna say I'm gonna I'm gonna send you uh, a video of him on uh, Graham Norton's couch, and uh, he's going back and forth with Daniel Radcliffe, and he he tells a funny story, but he's very charming too, just like just in his demeanor. Yeah. Also, I don't think I've ever heard him speak in his natural accent. That's what's um, charming. He's, Scot- he's, he's he's Scottish. He's a, very Scottish. It's a charming Scottish. It's not like what the fuck? <laughs> it's not a it's not of a uh, under the skin. You, like Ewan Bremner. <laughs> he's not. Yeah. He's not Ewan Bremner. <laughs> um, yeah. No. I I saw some behind the scenes footage of him, and I was like, oh, that's what he actually sounds like. That's cool because he always does like a pretty flat British accent um, in almost all of his acting roles, but. Uh, yeah, he, he nails this one cop in the nuts, and he does a tactical roll out of there. He steals a hat. I really love this, like, it's not even an action beat. It's just a really cool bit where he does, like, a solid snake thing where he he escapes mm-hmm. down, like, a sewer grate, but he takes advantage of somebody trying to charge the, the east and west Berlin Wall uh, with a flaming vehicle, and all the guards nearby just, like, that was of course, him. run. Because he stole oh, that he, cop Oh, bar. he caused it? Yeah. So he set fire to the vehicle and kind of shoved it towards the wall and then used it as a diversion. And he doesn't throw a punch. He doesn't hit anybody. He doesn't shoot anybody. He just uses the commotion to escape Snake. down a sewer grating. Snake. <laughs> Snake. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Lorraine is on her way to East Berlin. Uh, I have to give props. Uh, we have B-plus smoke lighting in this movie. There's a lot of smoking, and it's just kind of standard, looks okay sometimes. Not like Die Hard. Die Hard is really bad smoke lighting. But the ice department, the ice prop, the ice props in this movie, not so much the bathtub, but when she's making drinks, she has got like beautiful pieces of ice in these glasses. They're, when she's making a drink on the plane, I thought it was kind of funny. She's got a nice, beautiful glass with ice, and then she just pours the vodka but then she just takes it like a shot i'm like well what the fuck was the point of the ice (laughs) why did you do that (laughs) yeah all props to the prop department uh because one thing that is important to note is you know this is in the late 80s this is a period piece um and they really did a stellar job putting together a a place and a time Mm. like the wardrobe and the props all the design elements feel just right it doesn't feel gaudy. That's the that's the really important thing, mm-hmm. is that it doesn't do like some other movies. They're just like the eighties, and they're like they throw like have everybody <laughs> dressed <laughs> up <laughs> like. <laughs> yeah, it's not like it's not like there's fucking keytars and Cindy Lauper hair everywhere. It's like no, it's like this. You know, I know some of her wardrobe is a little outrageous from time to time, but I guess one of the important production notes they had before they even started the thing was that uh, cool is is always the aim above all else <laughs> um, yes and i think they achieved that for the most part especially with her wardrobe um and in fact they have like a a line of dialogue when she arrives in germany and she gets picked up by a car unexpectedly um where they ask if she has any bags and she's she says they've been sent uh, uh, and i guess that was edited in there as a means to explain her extensive wardrobe changes throughout the film well, where it's like oh she had a shit ton of bags but there's a reason you're not seeing them on screen. So uh, they before she left, her uh, 
her boss said, don't trust anybody. And she's like, okay. So she gets to the airport and these guys are like, hey, sorry, David couldn't make it. We're picking you up instead. And she hesitates and you're just like, she went in that car on purpose, correct? Like she knew that like this was not the people that she was supposed to be meeting. I I think it was, well, I mean, obviously she was aware, but it's one of those situations where it's like, do what they say or else eat a bullet in the face as you're trying to walk away, maybe. I think she was. I think she was like, "I'm taking these people out now, so I don't have to deal with this later." Yeah, but it's signaled to us through her body language and her hesitancy that, oh yeah, she's she's keen to the. She's yeah. aware of the well, fact that yeah, these guys it, are up to no good. It's more than just like, huh? My spider senses are tingling. But I'll just I'll trust these. She's not trusting these guys. That's why I wasn't sure. It's was like, is she trusting them? And she's just ready, or she's like, I know these dudes are bad. Uh, it doesn't matter. Car chase. <laughs> we're gonna have the uh, the car fight. Oh, yeah. This car fight is excellent. Um, I did mention Sam Hargrave was the stunt coordinator on this film, and uh, this sequence was one that the director, I guess, kind of almost gave him carte blanche to, like, just make it good. (laughs) And he fucking did. Um, This is very much like a a James Bond-style fight where it's like, you know, you have your common collected hero uh, at the mercy of a pair of villains, and they just go to fucking town on them. You know, (laughs) because I've been going through the MCU, and nothing against her, but, like... I find I find this performance by Charlize Theron, the physicality of it, convincing. Unlike any scenes with uh, ScarJo doing her Black Widow stuff, it's just like this is just wire work. Like I don't, I'm not believing any of this. Yeah, actually, in more recent years, not like early on, I don't think that people were as as vocal about this. But in in more recent years, there's been a lot of backlash um, when it comes to Black Widow's choreography. Um, it has to do with her doing a lot of lucha libre moves on people, <laughs> um, stuff that doesn't necessarily hurt or make make any sort of logistical sense. Yeah, it just looks really cool. This is falling camera. with style. Yeah, uh, yeah. This is this is you. This is your opponent allowing you to wrap their your thighs around their head, uh, do some twirly shit, and then they decide to fall down yeah. <laughs> and break their own neck. Um, yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, ScarJo, as far as I know, I don't know how much of her own stunt work she did for those earlier MCU movies. I can't speak for that newest one, but uh, Charlize Theron really ac- acquitted herself well in this film. She was She's on, on camera visible doing almost all the action, aside from maybe some of the nastiest of bumps. Um, but for the most part, it's all her doing it. And uh, yeah, her her. The way she is asked to move, the, the movement she's asked to do, uh, are a lot more logical. And actually, this uh, I don't want to go on a super long rant about this, but uh, part of what makes action movies so interesting for me as a genre, and just like martial arts on film especially, is that everything works in trends. Uh, and horror movies do that too. And I've always found it really fascinating to watch trends unfold in real time uh, because I'm, I'm one of those people that I can be subjected to like similar flavors of the same thing over and over and over again. Pal, I do that in my daily life with my, my diet. (laughs) It's like, it doesn't bother me that much, but it's the small variations. It's the details and execution that make worlds of difference to me. Um, And what's interesting is that we, when atomic blonde came out, we were in the midst of kind of a sea change uh, when it came to action choreography, or at least martial arts choreography um, in that, a couple of key movies had come out, um, namely The Raid uh, kind of introduced an entire new genre that uh, has 
since been dubbed uh, Splatter Foo, uh, which is basically uh, stellar, like highly impactful martial arts uh, that also incorporate extensive makeup and gore effects. Um, there's a little bit of that in this. And not only that, um, we're still kind of in the afterglow of, uh, of the, the trend of oneers. Um, that would be like one take action sequences or at least faux one take action sequences. Um, when uh, Netflix uh, had their Daredevil show, uh, the first season of that, I think it was the second episode, uh, if not the first episode, had what's called the hallway fight, where it's basically like a four minute action sequence uh, where basically the camera doesn't cut away. Uh, it's something that this director, David Leach, certainly carried into this film where it's like, you know, that was pretty fucking awesome. And I'd like to do that uh, for my own film. It's something he was dreaming of doing and he certainly executed it with a palm. But um, yeah, there were a lot of trends going on that contributed to the, the style of action design they got in this film. Um, but moreover, I think just uh, the popularity of things like MMA uh, contributed uh, to the way we see martial arts and violence on film uh, portrayed these days. And I think it just comes down to the people who are into those kinds of things having a more educated palette where it's like we're we're kind of trending away from the, the flowery, like circular arm movements of like a traditional Kung Fu movie or something where it's just movement for the sake of movement, just like flowery, colorful movements that look really awesome on camera if you edit them and shoot them properly uh, to bringing logic and reason to every beat in the choreography where almost every blow uh, in every action scene in Atomic Blonde has some sort of logical reason for being there where it's like you the person putting together the choreography is of that mind where it's not just I want to do some cool shit it's not just hey do a fucking spinning kick it's like why because spinning kicks are cool shut up it's like no like given the circumstances given the logistics of the room layout and and the positioning of all the characters what would this person do here skip forward two seconds in the timeline what would they do now and they keep asking those questions until they reach the resolution um and i think that's currently where we reside uh when it comes to action design these days but um i've been saying it for a while i'm i'm, I'm, I'm still looking for the new trends in cinema right now i think the i think i discovered the newest one kyle and it's a uh, aspect ratios so oneers have been very very popular for a good solid five or six years would you agree i don't know like, what you just said <laughs> uh so like a, a one take like a oh, master shot yes, like like casino yes. like 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 goodfellas the goodfellas shot yeah the one t- yeah that, true detective there's one uh the one in this movie is not at an actual continuous shot it's no all no absolutely together. but yeah no, i know what you mean absolutely no but that that's been a trend for a long while like 1917 is essentially an entire movie uh, built on that premise. Uh, bu- 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 God damn it, Michael Keaton, Birdman. Birdman. Yeah, Birdman. Same deal. So in the past, like almost decade now, Wonders have been really, really popular. I think. I think since but- uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League, I think changing aspect ratios because I know Wes Anderson does that too. I think that's what we're going to but- start seeing in in mo- movies moving forward. Uh, Wes, I don't know about Wes Anderson. I mean, he does. Wes Anderson's is completely different. Where he has a, he'll likely do a really long like stage, like a really long set, and just move across. Like he's not, oh. he's he doesn't interact with the people like a normal film. Like he's literally just move it down, move it down, move it down. Oh no, I I meant uh, the way his uh, 
aspect ratios change like like he he'll make the frame skinnier to suit the shot mm-hmm. and and the story like he's been doing that for a while but yeah. I saw, like for whatever fucking reason Zack Snyder's Justice League is in 4 by 3 which I have not seen a, a wide like mainstream release film released in that format in years <laughs> not since the dawn of HD like like HD TVs becoming mainstream I guess uh, but that's that's my bet for what we're going to see moving forward is lots of stuff like that. Continuous but shots, we'll just like just seeing more of those. Just like fucking around with the aspect ratio. Like mm. we're going to make this shot skinny. We're going to do all sorts of thingamajigs like that. But anyway, tirade over. Uh, so, yeah, we get the car fight. And basically it involves uh, two fellows. Do you a need a Gatorade? And... <laughs> I, I kind of do, man. <laughs> Uh, uh, we got a driver. I mean, yeah, with the physicality of her in this car, I lo- it was almost comedic, but uh, it was still effective. Like I was feeling it. Her kicking the guy in the face as he's like the guy in the back seat. So there's a guy in the back seat next to her and a guy driving, and she just starts. Uh, she takes off her heel and just starts hitting this dude in the fucking head, <laughs> which is a pretty good move. But she ends up opening the door and is trying to kick him out of it, and she's like, he's trying to hold on for dear life, and she keeps just fucking. Bam! Hitting him in the in the face, and you, f- I felt those kicks. I'm like that. That looked pretty good. I thought he looked like Pepe Silvia. <laughs> Pepe Silvia. Uh, Charlie, what's his face from yeah. All- It's Always Sunny? Oh, like he, his. He kinda, he, oh, okay. he kind of looked like that actor. <laughs> I was gonna say because Pepe Silvia is illiterate Charlie reading Pennsylvania. <laughs> so like, Pepe Silvia is not a real person. <laughs> Well, I only know it from the meme. I haven't seen the show. Oh, yeah. So somebody, the theory is, is that because everybody's getting letters from Pepe Silva. Who's this Pepe Silva, Pepe Silva? Because Charlie can't read. He thinks Pennsylvania is Pepe Silva. And they've never, the show hasn't confirmed this as far as I know, but somebody on like uh, Twitter posted it. I'm like, oh my God, that makes so much sense. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure uh, the presence of a stunt dummy made Kyle very, very happy. Oh, yeah, when I that fe- When that fella does exit the vehicle, he is represented by just a, a limp-ass dummy <laughs> on the ground. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty limp dummy. Uh, I thought that might have been like a, this is an 80s movie. Like, here's a little tip of the hat to 80s. Uh, yeah. Oh, most certainly, yes. David Leach on the commentary was very big on pointing out what things were practical and what things were not. Mm. And you can tell that he's one of those snobs that he like he it's a badge of honor to say that we did we did it live. Yeah. Like we did this shit for real. So he's he he is proud to put a fucking dummy in his movie. <laughs> um, and it, it doesn't look good, but it made me smile. It doesn't <laughs> for I've, sure. I've seen it's <laughs> it's good enough that if you're not paying attention if you just kind of go with the scene you won't really notice it too much but if you have an eye for it you're like oh that was a fucking dummy well maybe if you're a goon in a spy movie you have like an off switch for your brain yeah we're just like he his his he loses his balance he's in midair and he's just like i'm dead it's just like rather than suffer the pain of hitting the pavement in motion it's like no i'd rather die in midair before i land you either need him to hit like some kind of concrete barrier or shoot him in the head that's the only time you're gonna ragdoll is those two yeah, yeah, but uh, it is worth noting uh, this this uh, tunnel that they're going through uh, was featured heavily in Captain America: Civil War. Oh, uh, it is yet. in Germany, it is in Berlin, uh, and I believe Sam Hargrave also worked on that film. And Sam uh, Hargrave so is who again? Stunt coordinator. That was a joke. Uh, he is. <laughs> 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 I'm, if 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 the listeners walk away with anything, I hope it's that they they know some of these names and faces now. They're gonna know Sam um, Hargrave. 
Um, I hope I hope so. The man deserves credit. He like his absence is felt on a lot of action movies where it's just like you had all these other good people, but you were missing him. And goddamn, man, you feel it. Um, but yeah, uh, the car crashes. And again, Sam Hargrave is actually the stuntman who drove the car uh, to, to flip it. Uh, so another credit for him. Um, and as it so happens, uh, James McAvoy shows up in a Porsche, by the way. Yeah. Um, good stunt driving on his part because that's him like doing that hard turn and break. And he gets, he gets out in one seamless motion. It's pretty fucking boss. Like his, like he only has like one or two, like really intense scenes. So I'm like, if he was shoot shooting for, you know, a few weeks or a month and he's just like in between takes, like, guys, can I like hang out and see you do the stunt? Like, like, let me try Let me just try it out. He might be cool like that. Like, let me try some of the stunt driving. Show me how to do that one thing. Dude, a movie like this, like, I would just be on the side. Oh, you would. They would have to have a squirt gun. He's back. Get him back. Yeah, it opened one of the the upper cabinet drawers, and Trevor's squirreled away in there. Yes, Jonesy, you stupid fuck, stupid cat. Yes, but yeah, he picks her up from the car, and they have they exchange words they're not exactly big fans of each other but now they're yeah. not they're off kind to, of reunited well they're not off to the right foot he was late picking her up and they took it as an opportunity to get her so she's not really happy with him he's like i'm fucking sorry i was having a threesome with two <laughs> so two chicks um yeah so she meets up with him they have a, a back and forth about stuff um and they stop by what i'm assuming is some kind of uh he, like kgb headquarters some kind of headquarters because he they take this dude out that they uh, what's I think it was his the guy that they, the stuntman you were just talking about. Oh, uh, Sam Hargrave. I went to school with a kid with a similar name but different last name. Uh, oh. I'm not going to say his name, but so it's throwing me off. I'm like, which one is it? Um, but yeah, he, <laughs> he he pulls him out of the trunk and he's like, say hello to Comrade Question or whatever, and just like throws him down. Uh, yeah. This, this Russian goon that he punches out, uh, he does it to like send a message. It's for Bremovich, Bremovich. Uh, who is played by uh, Roland Muller, uh, who is a Danish actor who in recent years has been getting like all the juicy heavy roles. Uh, he's worked opposite The Rock in a skyscraper. Oh, uh, all as... the juicy roles, huh? <laughs> <laughs> he he has. Oh, he's also in uh, Liam Neeson's uh, The Commuter um, as a really good red herring because he, he just looks sinister. Like he's he's a big guy. He's got a ruddy complexion, and he's fucking Danish. So as an American, it's like, where are you from? And to quote Lars from Heavyweights, far away. Because <laughs> Denmark, what the fuck is that? Is that a country? <laughs> but um, he's kind of he's kind of inserted into the narrative as like he's supposed to be the big bad. He's the guy who's pulling all the strings when it comes to sending goons after Lorraine aka Charlize Theron but um yeah uh James McAvoy punches this guy out on his doorstep to send a message essentially and this goon shows this goon with the pompadour shows up a few more times in the movie but we immediately cut to Bremovich our our Danish fella uh beating the shit out of some kids with a skateboard yeah um it's it's, like uh, it's pretty great 
It's pretty great. Uh, um, we, it's set. It's set to ninety nine Luftballons. Which, uh, it's fantastic. Which several iterations play in this uh, film. Yeah, there were. I think we're yes. back in East Berlin. We jump from east and west just throughout the film. If it we looks do. like we shit, do. it's East Berlin. If it looks kind of nice, it's West Berlin. Uh, but yeah, he's just like, hey, I'm looking for. I thought he was looking for McAvoy, but he's actually looking for Spyglass. But yeah, he just beats the shit out of this kid with a skateboard. Uh, nothing else really happens here. We just know that we've got a heavy uh, guy that's looking for. And you can see that um, there's cops there as well. So I was kind of confused about that. I'm like, is this guy, is he government? Is he mob? Because there's definitely police there. Yeah, I believe Bremovich is tied in with the government. Okay. Uh, but, but you know, it's an incredibly corrupt area, yeah. like, part oh, yeah. of the world. So, you know, he probably has his own motives as well. Um, but yeah, that's our introduction to him and his goon squad who will serve as our principal goon squad throughout the film. But uh, then we cut to Lorraine in her apartment or her uh, hotel room, rather. And this was where uh, Kyle had mentioned during our The Long Kiss Goodnight review, uh, the Vegas hotel they have kind of made me think of this. this set. Yeah, very much. Yeah, yeah. So like immediately I was like, yeah, Kyle, you're right. I think I think there is a little bit of inspiration there, but uh, she's hanging out. She's watching the news. They did a really good job of keeping uh, the news headlines like a, a constant uh, background element, where yeah, basically it's, it's all like you need to, all you need yeah. to know is, oh yeah, yeah, actually very similar to yeah. the cable guy, very similar. Uh, where it's just like a ticking clock element, where it's like, hey, tensions are boiling over in East and West Berlin. Uh, it's not a safe place to be. And every ten minutes or so, we just get a news headline reminding us of that fact. Uh, we're also introduced to Sofia Butella on a motorcycle. Just kind of stalking her a little bit not doing a whole lot just you know snapping photos of her from afar so yeah so yeah delphine is uh sophia butella and i don't understand her character in this movie did you did you happen to pick up on her because it i don't understand how she's connected with everything uh i don't entirely understand either i uh, i know she's a french spy uh, stationed in East or West Brooklyn. Um, and somehow she's tied up with James McAvoy um, and the hunt for these MacGuffins and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure how she ties into Charlize Theron's story. Um, but I will tell you this much. Um, a lot of her stuff was condensed. Like mm -hmm. a lot of her scenes were condensed. Um, I did watch the deleted content uh, on, on the disc and a lot of it is just dialogue featuring her. Um, so it could just be a problem where there was a lot cut out um, that maybe explains it a little bit better. But as it stands, it's like she's a welcome presence in the film. But again, the like, like it said, the narrative and the logistical aspects of this film are not its strong suits. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I don't have a better answer for you. That's all right. Oh, yeah, so she's taking photos. I think this is where Charlize is going to the morgue to identify the body. Um, yeah. And she does that. It uh, The the morgue lady's like, we don't make small mistakes like this in Germany or whatever. I don't know what the mistake was. I didn't catch it. Because Charlize is using a British accent, but she's also um, like whisper talking almost. It's like just, it's so low that you can hardly hear what she's saying. Yeah, it has something to do with they, they won't release his body because his passport information doesn't match up. Mm. Um, I do know that this gets resolved at the end of the film because we do get that one shot of the, the two coffins draped in British flags yes. uh, being flown out. Um, so I guess 
that gets resolved. But but the point is, we're reminded once again that she has some sort of emotional connection to him. We see her looking at the corpse. I really love the the kind of like grimy green lighting they have in the coroner's office, like mm-hmm. in the morgue. Oh yeah, uh, it looks sickly and it looks appropriate for the setting. Uh, and it contrasts really strongly with her returning to her t- hotel, which is bathed in like pinks and blues and purples. It's got it's goddamn really cool. It's like a commando. She's got neon lighting in the hotel. Yeah, she's literally like neon tubes in her hotel room. I don't know how the fuck one sleeps with that in the room. That's like right on par with that episode of Seinfeld, where the 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 neon chicken sign is blaring in through the window. I, I think <laughs> I think in those rooms you're doing so much coke that by the time that you're sleeping, it doesn't matter if the lights are on. You are out. Oh yeah, you are you are far too busy observing the politics of dancing uh, <laughs> to do any sort of sleeping in that kind of hotel room. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, she heads home and uh, James McAvoy is intruding on her. Um, apparently, he's sneaky, but not sneaky enough that she didn't get wise to him. And uh, they have a little physical exchange. She breaks a fucking bottle on his head, yeah. and he takes it like a champ. <laughs> I, I, I like that he doesn't even he doesn't even spit out his cigarette. <laughs> yeah, no, he still got it in. Um, they have a little exchange here. It's kind of flirt talking. Well, he's, he's, uh, flirt would be too nice. Uh, he's, it's skeezy flirting, I guess is the way to put it. Um, uh, I don't really know what this exchange is all about, but I think she just goes to a watch store next. Oh yeah. Uh, I think she goes to visit, uh, Till Schweiger. Hugo uh, Stieglitz. Hugo Stieglitz. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, who's apparently very very popular very well known in germany um i know him for being in that sylvester stallone movie driven mm. <laughs> and that's about it and i think he also was in a movie about the red baron that was supposed to be pretty good too he's also in salt lake city punk the- oh yeah that's right he was the the dealer yeah the really scary fucking dealer yeah, the really scary guy <laughs> uh, til schweiger til schweiger uh yes um <laughs> So she goes to the watch store. She's like, I'm looking for a watch, and it's something that has to do with the movie. And he's like, come back tomorrow. And he's like, okay, good enough. He's talking about yeah, that watch, yeah. Th- this was very much uh, Atomic Blonde. Your John Wick is showing. <laughs> <laughs> it's very much very similar uh, in tone and in concept, where it's like you have this man in a very prim and proper looking office doing a very methodical job who never looks at you when he talks to you, who you speak in code to, and yeah. And he has all the answers. Uh, it's it's kind of neat. I mean, it, Till Schweiger's cool. Um, but uh, she has a dream uh, about Sam Hargrave, about like being in bed with him. The director did note on the commentary that apparently this was shot in the like in the facility where they rent the cameras, and they just threw a sheet over his head <laughs> and filmed it like in the back of a warehouse or some shit. Nice. I mean, I mean, if you're like, if how, we we charge it by the hour, like done. We'll get this done in 15 minutes. Well, again, that's kind of the benefit of working with a guy who normally isn't a film director. Normally, he's the guy. Normally, he does like more the just get it done kind of shit. So, like, he has that mentality of like working against the clock and working on a very tight budget. Mm-hmm. So apparently, this movie didn't have a whole lot of money to work with. So really? he was very conscious of decisions like that. Um. Yeah, this movie largely came together because uh, Charlie's Theron championed it. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe after uh, Mad Max Fury Road really did a lot uh, for everybody involved, uh, financially and otherwise. Um, but she got invested in the project. She really wanted to make it a thing. Um, and it wasn't 
it couldn't have really happened without her. And it was apparently such a priority that David Leach actually jumped off of John Wick to uh, to do this, his his first solo effort. And I'd say it worked the really, I would think it worked swimmingly for everybody because John Wick 2 is just fine without him. And this is a perfectly awesome action movie unto itself. Oh, it did. Ju- oh, um, it made its money back. It made money. So, yeah, this is why are we not getting a second one? I want to I want an Atomic Blonde 2. I would totally take an Atomic Blonde 2. Uh, I'm not so sure if I'd be happy about it being like set in the 90s or some shit. No, um, you can't I, do that. You can't do that again. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'd I'd bite for the same like period flavor uh, that this one has going <sighs> maybe, for it. I think that's a trick you can only do once and have it really work. Maybe we should leave Otherwise it Otherwise it could get obnoxious. We should leave it with us wanting a second one and just never give us one because it's not going to live up. I think that's how you do it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, sad to say, but um, I, I like this movie just as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, although I did remember leaving the theater being like, I would watch more of that. Yeah, for sure. Because <laughs> they end it, they end it with like, yeah, this is going to keep going. Like, there's, there's more to this. Uh, well, and she's that kind of character that mm-hmm. she's a, she can be, she can do anything you ask the character to do, and it, you can make sense of it because she's such a super spy. Um, so yeah, next she, I think she gets the address to the dude's apartment or something like that. Maybe that's what she was talking to James McAvoy about, but she's going to check out his apartment. Is she going to Spyglass's apartment or to the dude? Oh, it's the dude. It's right. It's the dude. See Kyle, this is why I love talking movies with you, uh, because you and I see eye to eye on this. I, I can't say this enough times about this movie. So far we've had basically nothing but positive things to say about this movie, but the way Kyle is talking about how these scenes play into each other dear listener is essentially how i understand this movie (laughs) i don't really know why characters go to the places they go or do the things that they do it just kind of happens and i'm fine with it it just kind of is but yeah she goes to some guy's apartment for some reason well, she, I don't understand it any better than that. So <laughs> I think because he had the, the guy that got shot in the beginning, uh, he had the watch. So they're going back to his apartment. And I think there's even like voiceover or like uh, spliced in the scene. And she's back in the interrogation room. Is like, why would you go there? The cops, the KGB, everybody's been there. There's nothing there. But she's going to go look at it. Um, and that's what this sequence is. It's the guy that got shot in the beginning because she sees that picture of James yeah. McAvoy and him uh, uh, shooting rabbits. Or they shot the rabbits already. Uh, but yes, but um, uh, she knows that uh, David, James McAvoy, has called the cops on her. He knows that she's going there. Um, so yeah, this is the uh, the cop fight, which I remember more than the stair. Like, I actually forgot about the staircase uh, sequence until we were about to get to it. I'm like, oh my god, I completely forgot about that. I'm like, the, that's the best part. Because this, <laughs> because this was the part of the movie where we were watching, I'm like... This is where it like turned on, where it's like, and the car is one thing. That's you have to coordinate that a different way. This she's actually like working through the apartment, so this is a more memorable action scene up to this point. So when you get here, it's like, oh, this movie's worth watching now. Okay, I'm in it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I will say this much: not every action beat in this movie is absolutely brilliant. Um, there's the one at the Stalker Theater, uh, the Kino yeah. International Theater, is is it's a placeholder it's just kind of like we we need someone to get hit here but we we need to save the goods for a little bit later um this scene though in the apartment is is certainly a highlight um i suspected it and it was confirmed by the director himself on the commentary that 
Uh, the style of choreography in this scene is very much in the vein of a Jackie Chan uh, or or like a Bourne movie where it's a lot of grab whatever object suits you. Um, but also they, they made uh, extensive use of humor uh, throughout the sequence where she's working her way through these cops and she, nobody's getting killed. Balls but everybody's first. Getting, Balls everybody's first. getting slapped in the dick. And, um, a lot of people get hit with pots. Um, at one point, a dude gets hit in the face with a with a fridge there's, like a fridge door there's no sportsmanship <laughs> in a street fight I, like if i don't give a fuck about that like yeah absolutely go for the balls if i get attacked where do you think i'm going first the balls yeah but the the juxtaposition of the violence the choreography of the violence like kyle had said lots of ball shots a lot of just like humorous gags of people falling through tables and getting launched across the room and stuff uh that juxtaposed with i think it's george michael singing Might um be. It's, it, like, really, really loud, yeah. She turns on the... Uh... And, and actually, that's another instance of the diegetic music yeah. where she turns on music. We actually see, I think it's an insert shot of her inserting a cassette into a stereo uh, to kind of discombobulate all the cops entering the apartment. Um, but, yeah, it's a, it's a really well-choreographed sequence. It has a lot of humor to it. Uh, there's some good kineticism. They, they do her a service in the form of giving her some long takes where she's in the center of the frame. It's like, yep, that's Charlie's there and doing all of that. Yeah. This style, this style of fight choreography or just like fighting in film is way more fun. Like, like comparing this to like SPL, like that's a completely different kind of fighting where it's, it's almost like video game characters fighting where it's like, there's no blood. They get hit and they come right back up and they're ready to go again. So it's just like, they're just going to keep hitting each other until the good guy wins. This it's like, it's more, not so much here, but in like the end fight, it's like, you can see it starting to wear her down a little bit. Not again, not here as much. But I like the like the Jackie Chan aspect where I'm using my surroundings, what I have around me, to as a weapon or just uh, to use against the other person. And also, like, not to go on another tangent. I promise, Kyle, this would be very short. But um, in terms of style of choreography, like you mentioned, SPL that was choreographed by Donnie Yen and his his team, which consists of a lot of people who are not Donnie Yen. Uh, and the st- the style of choreography of like a Hong Kong thing really, like the number of movements per hit is generally like uh, heightened. Yeah. Where it's like there'll be 10, 15 movements before a single blow is landed. Whereas this style, it's just like thump, yeah. thump, thump. Like yeah. everything is impactful. Everything is like deliberate and impactful in such a way where every shot counts, I guess. Whereas like the Hong Kong style or anything that involves a lot of complex fast hand work where it's like da 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 bop da 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 bop this is just like boom 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 it, yeah. it's it's a very different rhythm mm-hmm. um, that calls back to the art form being choreography where it is very much akin to dance as opposed to actual fighting but um yeah very enjoyable scene i love the i love the stunt with her using the rope like tied around yeah. the guy's neck to good. jump off the balcony into the square uh, we get a Wilhelm scream, Kyle. I didn't even catch uh, that. When, yep. We get a, ow! Oh! <laughs> it's great. Uh, we get a man getting eaten by crocodile, I think, is what the sound file's called. Um, and then the bump she takes after she falls off of the rope when she bangs into the door. Mm-hmm. It's like, ow! Yeah. <laughs> My ass! <laughs> See, it's, it, it's nice for me, like, just, I'm going to call it popcorn watching a movie. Like, brains off, I'm just watching the movie. This is more enjoyable for me, is this style. 
yeah this sequence is a good example of popcorn action where it's just like it's just perfectly enjoyable to watch but in terms of narrative we're not really telling a story with yeah. this fight sequence we're just watching cool shit yeah which is very very different from the stairwell well, action scene she just needs to get from point a to point b and she's got to exactly. work through the putties to get there yeah, and that's the point, is yeah. they're putties. They don't have personalities. They don't have kids at home that we need to be concerned about. So, no, they're just, chaff, they're just chaff for her to cut through. But uh, I was really shocked to hear that this last bit of choreography, the, the one take, like legitimate one take, where she puts her mask up and beats the fuck out of these two cops, mm-hmm. apparently it almost was cut from the movie. Really? I was like, are you fucking crazy? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's pretty great. Like, it's pretty great, and it's great for her the actress because she puts the mask up which in an mcu movie in a black widow movie or something would be an excuse to insert a stunt double Mm -hmm. um but the payoff is that it's all one take and then they push in close up of her face and she lowers the mask Mm -hmm. to show you that yeah i just did that shit bye yeah and then they even have like a musical sting where there's like that egyptian riff on the music Mm -hmm. plays when she like disarms the gun it's like that's a mic drop moment. That's pretty fucking cool. That's something that, as an actress, probably would attract. Like, as if I was an actor, that would attract me at that project. Where it's like, oh, you're gonna make you're gonna make me do that and make me look awesome. Sure, <laughs> like I'll go to training camp for six weeks. Fuck it. Um, but yeah, she meets up with James McAvoy after the fact, and we get to see his dude lair, mm-hmm. <laughs> which consists of uh, what Levi's and cigarettes. <laughs> Levi's, cigarettes, Jack Dan- Jack Daniels, yeah. And pornography. Lots and lots of pornography. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so she goes to the apartment, and then I think she goes to that bar. Like, at the beginning, those two guys that picked her up that she beat the shit out of gave her a card. And she's like, you need to go to this place eventually. And she, I think this is the bar she goes to. Because that fucking, yes. uh, the German guy, the guy that beat the shit out of the guy with the skateboard is just, like, right there at the bar. And they chit-chat for a second about nothing. Uh, I think it's like, she knows who he is. He knows who she is. Uh, at this point in the film, we don't really know what this exchange is all about. But uh, Sophia Botella, uh, Delphine, comes up and is like, hey, three's a crowd. I'm here. We got to catch up. We kick rocks, dude. Yeah, uh, we get Der Commissar uh, playing over the scene. And yes, you're absolutely right about the card. I didn't even notice that, but the commentary spelled it out to oh, me. Really? Like the logistics as to why she's at this particular It's bar. like if you weren't paying a second, paying attention for that one and a half seconds, yeah, you, would, you wouldn't know. I, I legitimately missed it all four times I've seen the movie. <laughs> I'm glad you caught it, Kyle. But um, yeah, uh, Der Commissar is playing. Uh, we have the entire scene bathed in intense red light. It's pretty cool looking. This was one of those aforementioned sequences uh, where Delphine, where uh, Sofia Boutella's dialogue gets like just cut to ribbons. Like she had a lot more to say, and it exists in the deleted scenes. Uh, but really, the important thing to note is that uh, there's a hot Algerian lady in town, and she has a thing for you. Yeah, <laughs> that's um, that's it. Like, it. That's really all. It, and she's interested too. But she she does give her the address to a club that she wants to meet her at later. Well, we as the viewers are watching this, and it's just like uh, Lorraine is just letting everything happen. It's like she's not giving away anything. Like she knows. It's like when she goes to uh, David's apartment, they kind of have that back and forth. Like, yeah, I you know that I called the cops on you, and I know that you called the cops on me, but they never say it. And here she's just like she's entertaining her. She's just trying to see what she wants, but she knows that she's up to something, and she knows that she's the one that's been following her, obviously. Um, but yeah, we get uh, we get a scene where we go back to the watch guy, and 
she's having a conversation with him, and I don't know really what they're talking about, but we learn that James McAvoy is listening in on the conversation, or he was recording it and just listened to it. Yeah, this movie is interspersed with a lot of sequences of people listening to recorded conversations from each other. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a reason for this, but uh, it, it isn't distracting. Like It doesn't slow the narrative down. It doesn't bog the movie down, but it does have a payoff, which actually is kind of neat when you get to the very end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but point is, uh, every all of these spy characters are collecting information on each other everybody's spying on everybody yeah. so even the people who are banging each other are spying on each other off hours um by the way uh james mcavoy legitimately had a broken arm mm-hmm. uh, for the filming of most of this film uh they worked it into the plot really well yeah um he, he wears a cast throughout much of the film and uh they use it for the housing of his uh microphone mm-hmm. um but yeah apparently he actually hurt himself for real and they used it to write it in um but yeah uh Till Schweiger, uh, he gives her a watch which uh, she disassembles, and there's some etchings in it yes, to give her the, the coordinates etchings. for like a, an address uh, to do some investigating. Yeah. Uh, so again, I don't know any more than the fact that she gets an address or or coordinates from a watch. I don't know for what reason. It's for Scar. She she. It, it's, <laughs> it's for, for what? It's to go meet Bill Skarsgård. I believe that's what it was for. Oh, okay. Because the next... Well, she did, a, she did a really shit job of meeting up with him then. God. <laughs> oh, it took her a while to get there. But yeah, I think she's... Yeah. <laughs> is she going from east to west Berlin now? Or west to east? Uh, I think it's west to east. It's east. Yes, it's east because she goes... Uh, she picks up that she's got a tail as soon as she gets over there. Uh, and she heads to a movie theater where they're watching Stalker. And did you see... Um, uh, by the way, Tarkovsky, for those of you who don't know... Um, if you listen to this, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. I I have Criterion. Uh, I have a Criterion collection. Um, no, that was a that was a gift from Gam Gam, right? Uh, Stalker, yes, it was. Uh, they, yeah, they, Kyle Kyle actually legitimately owns a copy of Tarkovsky's Stalker. You can skip it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> holy shit, is that movie boring? Uh, Tarkovsky just he's just not somebody that I get. He's just not. I'm just not there intellectually oh you gave it a shot yeah you know? um but yeah so i like the did you see the layout like what they had so I, this was on imdb and it makes sense that they would have uh so like soviet occupied and they're not getting new they're not getting new movies so this movie's like like eight years old at this point so it makes sense like yeah they would just be playing the same shit over and over again um but yeah she goes into this movie theater she's trying to lose her tail uh, she bow gets out, but then she gets into a fight. Uh, she does fuck up this dude with a ladder, which I did enjoy. Yeah, uh, so she goes to the Kino International Theater, which I believe is actually a, a Berlin landmark. Yeah. I think it still stands to this day. And apparently they did their research. Stalker actually was playing there at this point in time. Uh, not terribly important, but... I think it's interesting that they put Stalker as the film of choice because that's like a very bold statement to make where it's like okay so you're you're confident in the cinematography of your film such that you will put a tarkovsky film like embedded it embedded within your own production and it's a very handsome film uh so you know i don't think they blew it by you know shooting themselves in the foot with that but yeah she goes into this theater apparently they were very careful to shoot the exterior of it uh from certain angles uh to highlight like the brutalist architecture of it uh, to make it feel contemporary for the late 80s. 
Um, they do a lot of that kind of stuff with this movie where they actually just use real life locations and just use clever angles uh, to make things look antiquated. Um, but yeah, uh, this fella that she bashes with the ladder, <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty great. She gets him in the throat and she gets him in the temple and then just cherry on top, she throws a fucking shelf on him when he's down, like still clasping his throat. It's pretty great. What is not so great is the little scuffle that comes right after. Well, so um, something that has been said is that she has been uh, pretty much running through dudes. Like, she's gotten, like, maybe clocked in the face once or twice. But this is the first person that she's had trouble with. Like, this guy's a pretty even match. So, Kyle, I did mention him at the very top during my whole spiel about 8711. Uh, Daniel Bernhardt. I had a feeling that he was important. I'm like, I... Once I realized this was John, the John Wick guy, um, and she started fighting this guy, I'm like, Trevor is going to have a tidbit about this guy. I'm not even going to look it up. Well, I mean, you said she was running through fellas. Mm. Uh, Daniel Bernhardt's like one of the only people she scuffles with twice, aside from, I think, the Pompadour guy, uh, who she doesn't, she only beats him up in the car, but after that, I think he just like is beat up for the rest of the movie. But Daniel Bernhardt, she legitimately has two throwdowns with, yeah. and uh, he's made up to look like the heaviest of the heavies uh he's got like shaved sides and like bleach blonde slick back hair he stands the fuck also he's like really six big guy. He's two like, or six three yeah yeah he's like six three legit and uh i think he's swiss uh so he, he has an he has a strange accent again by american standards that's me showing my ugly americanism but um yeah i i i really like daniel bernhardt he's been in so many awesome martial arts movies um and his career had an awesome resurgence where first time i saw him was in Bloodsport two through fucking four um and then he popped up in the matrix reloaded uh opposite keanu um and now he's a fixture at 8711 studios and uh man uh he's he's always great anytime anytime i see him in a movie uh it's like a reason to go see the movie honestly because i know that I know his affiliation, so I know what that means for the production. Didn't exactly work out for Birds of Prey, uh, but he was in the trailer for that movie. Uh, I think Harley Quinn stepped on his legs and like broke his kneecaps. And I was like, hey, it's Daniel Bernhardt getting his legs broke. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, this problem with the scuffle, I think, is that visually, I've, I love the setup for it because they're standing behind the projection screen for the, the movie for Stalker. Uh, so it it creates a really cool silhouetted imagery. It's kind of similar to the uh, um, the fight inspector, uh, which Did or we... no Skyfall, Skyfall rather. Um, there's a fight in the uh, uh, in the China sequence uh, in in Skyfall. That's entire. I think it's one take and it's entirely in silhouette. Uh, it's really really awesome. This one not so much, but I think the problem here is that they're holding the, they're holding back their wad because <laughs> they're it, they're scared of blowing their wad because they know what kind of wad it's going to be and they don't want to rob it of any of its momentum and so what we have here is they even inserted dialogue on his part saying that I, he just wants to talk yeah it, it basically it's a it's a verbal signal to us the list like us the viewer that this fight is very low stakes like any any attacks that he makes on her are not meant to be lethal. It's just he's trying to disarm her and keep her, like grab hold of her. Um, there is a pretty cool bit where she punches him in the face with her keys. That's pretty good. And they get and they get stuck in his sinus cavity, and he takes it like a champ. So mm. that tells you what level of toughness he is. But yeah, it's just kind of a clumsy fight. It's not aided by the fact that she's wearing these 
gross high heels during the whole thing. Mm. Um, and anytime I see that during a complex action sequence, I'm like, hey, <laughs> like you can't, you can't expect complex movements when those kinds of heels are involved. Um, but yeah, long story short, uh, there's a scuffle and she goes to meet uh, Bill Skarsgård on the roof, uh, kind of plants the seeds for aid down the road uh, for getting a spyglass out of the country um, as well as for the finale of the movie. But <clears throat> also we see that uh, Buckton, the uh, Icelandic fellow from the opener, uh, is now in a position where he wants to sell the watch. Uh, he goes and he has a little verbal exchange with Til Schweiger mm-hmm. where he tells him to like, hey, uh, get your uh, get your brokers ready to like accept a, a big item. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but uh, I have stuff to sell. Um, and then I think we cut to the uh, the politics of dancing. Dude, I'm like. gonna fast forward to this shit uh, because this is this is where the director got like I don't know the sex scene, what it other than she's passing off information. But I mean, like this is a pretty gratuitous sex scene, um, kind of almost '90s ish. It's like it's interesting. It's in this decade. Uh, this uh, so we've got the club that she mentioned that. Uh, uh, Sophia Botello mentions, "Hey, my friend does this thing in the club." She meets her at the club. Uh, she gets the drop on her. She like takes her off to the side. And, like, what the fuck are you? Like, what, what what are you doing? Like, what's your thing? And I didn't catch what she said. Um, but I don't know. I guess she kind of says like, "I'm a spy" or something like that. Um, they go back. They have sex. And then the important thing from the sex part is that she got information from. Uh, Sophia Botella, but she turned up the music really loud so they couldn't hear, and that's what uh, the CIA guy, that's what they're concerned about. Like, what did she tell you? She told you something, obviously. Yeah, so she's protecting her by not sharing that yeah. information. But I will say this much about that sex scene. Um, there's a camera move they do about three or four times in the movie where they rotate the camera on its axis. Uh, really awesome transition from the very spacious toilet mm-hmm. uh, to them in bed. Uh, the, there's this camera rotation that happens in time with the song. It's a really awesome shot. They do the same thing with James McAvoy waking up in bed with the two women and with her arriving at the, the apartment before the, the rope fight. Um, I just love that music cue. It, it's one of those really rock-solid music cues where, you know, God forbid I hear the politics of dancing playing somewhere, I associate that image uh, of two women writhing together oh it's right <laughs> it's right <laughs> with that song um but yeah very spacious toilet but apparently the sex scene was uh uh masterminded by charlie theron herself oh damn um, <laughs> Go back, yeah have... no, she she <laughs> she insisted on uh on on this love scene wow uh, oh okay. okay yeah she she thought she thought it aided the narrative because it it contributed to the uh like anything anything that the mission requires attitude that a spy has to have i thought it added like, more it, to the character like she you know she's about the job but she's also like a little james bond is like hey i'm gonna get laid along the way yeah no i i don't think it detracts from anything it's kind of it's kind of neat that how casual it arrives in the movie yeah. it's like it doesn't have a whole lot of build up and again that's that music cue is worth it for me it didn't really matter what the characters were up to as long as we get that 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 tune, that tune with that camera movement. They were up to um, some hanky panky. 
Oh. Uh, but yeah, they bang, and uh, she goes to <laughs> she goes to meet John Goodman at the wall. And uh, the director was very keen on pointing out that uh, the uh, the no man's land they built, mm-hmm. they built like this is all a set. Oh, really? Like, this, this yeah. There's very little CGI here. Maybe just the skyline, but the actual the actual ground, the actual snow. Actually, it was real snow. They didn't plan on it, but it snowed that day. Nice. Yeah, this is yeah, where he tells cool. her like. Uh, some more stuff um he says that uh sophia sophia botello is just kind of out of her element like she's in kind of deep and we're probably gonna kill her i think that's kind of what he alludes to right or uh something along those lines yeah. you got me kyle because i'm uh, i notice how often i'm key like keying in on the visual elements yeah. of this movie <laughs> dialogue is not something i was very concerned with yeah um <laughs> Let's see here. So yeah, so this is where we get um, the uh, the Game of Thrones guy. Uh, he thinks he's got the drop on James McAvoy. James McAvoy is just kind of like hanging out over the side of a car. Did we? Was there anything important between the John Goodman exchange? Other than no. I think yeah. no. He he gives her a newspaper that has some spy shit in it. It has like a coded message in the paper. But yeah, Satchel's, James McAvoy and Bakhtin have yeah, a meetup. Yeah, because it's like Satchel has been compromised. That's the next thing. Um, so yeah. I, he gets. He thinks he gets the drop on James McAvoy, but James McAvoy has like this little dagger, and he just fucking boom punctures this dude right in the forehead. It's pretty great. It's on par with uh, Jaiman Hansu and mm-hmm. uh, e- eating rising. a fire axe in the yeah. face. Yes, money, 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 money. Bam. <laughs> yeah, and I I like this because McAvoy is just like that's for like the dude. So you kind of get you kind of get the sense that McAvoy is crooked. Like you're like, he's, he's a crooked spy. It feels like it. And you have this moment where he's like, that's for my fucking friend basically. So like, oh, okay. Um, but he gets the watch off the guy, the watch with all the names. Yeah. But he doesn't seem too keen on telling anybody about that. No. Um, so yeah, Bakhtin's off the table. The watch is in the possession of James McAvoy and Lorraine doesn't really seem to know that uh they do have a couple more dialogue exchanges though one of which happens in a big uh, gaudy club that uh the director did note they shot the hell out of and it amounts to like two seconds of footage in the finished film so a cinematographer might be bummed about that uh editor was kind of apologetic about that but uh, we cut back to uh charlie's theron and sophia butella in bed together and uh they have uh spy pillow talk basically mm-hmm. where it's just like talking about the the complex nature of relationships under these circumstances where they're generally forcibly artificial uh, because emotions are complicated and missions are not um so a lot of this dialogue uh was cut out um that this this conversation was much longer uh, in the deleted scenes so again sophia Platella, <laughs> maybe she pissed someone off or something but like a lot of her scenes were cut but it's a nice little exchange the lighting is really beautiful looking um and the two of them have pretty good like they give each other really good looks mm-hmm. like they have good like eye chemistry well they're both um, smoke shows just like looking each other in the eyes like yeah it, they've got great eye chemistry but this is a you know a stunt coordinator directing a film so it's just like can we just stop with the chick talk man we gotta get to the fights it's a fighting movie jeez you know to his credit he's not like that on on the commentary i I was i was fully expecting that 
Um, but what what was really kind of cool, Kyle, and again, not to completely derail us, I'm sorry, but um, what was really kind of cool listening to David Leach talk was that um, auteur theory is one of those things. I don't know if you and I have ever had an extensive conversation about it, but it's like it's a forever debate in the film community. Um, I I like to believe in it, but I know it's I know it's phony because I know how many hands touch a movie before it reaches the screen, you know. Um, and when you listen to David Leach talk again, stuntman, actor, stunt double, stunt coordinator, then director, I think because he has that perspective, he completely tosses that theory out the window. Like he's he's so humble and he's so big on giving credit where credit is due. Where he, like he's straight up honest about some of the action scenes in this movie, where he's like, "Yeah, it was my dream to do the scene. I handed it off to Sand Hargrave to fucking do it." because that's making a movie <laughs> yeah. and like the cinematography he's like i would love to take credit for some of this lighting i didn't do it but my name's on it so it, it was really interesting just to hear him talk so honestly about how collaborative a process it is um and to have him actually be somewhat dismissive of the stunt aspect of the movie aside from the staircase sequence most of the rest of it though he was more concerned about acting and editing well that was mostly what he had to say (laughs) well i've noticed that like in interviews and stuff like that nowadays um actors are very hesitant to say uh bad things about projects they've worked on some of them like will just flat out say this is the worst thing ever this person's awful and those people tend to have a reputation but for the most part you tend to like i've noticed that People are very positive, like glass half full about every project that they do because uh, you want to keep these working relationships. I mean, this is a, a career like you work with these people and you might work with them again. So it's nice that he is like that. But I, I feel like there might be kind of a change uh, as far as in Hollywood where people are trying to be more positive. Well, the Internet helps with that. Yeah. Where everything. Everything is forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas before, you know, it was it was like the school playground. You could. I could talk about the guile handcuffs and Street Fighter and like fatalities and games that didn't have them and people couldn't call me on my bullshit because yeah. we didn't have the internet. Um, but yeah, uh, again, Kyle, this all comes back to maybe you should try listening to a commentary someday. I find it, I find it invigorating and engaging. <laughs> it's stimulating. I'm not saying that your time is less than mine, but. If I have time for a movie, I'm not watching it with the commentary. So it might oh, be Oh, Kyle, I I have even less time for movies <laughs> than you do. I'm I'm not even fucking kidding, Dude. man. Like I'm I'm baffled by some of the like the the number of movies you consume consume from week to week because I'm lucky if I watch a movie once every 3 weeks outside of this podcast. I've been trying to watch the, the, empty... the way... Oh, go ahead, sorry. Uh, the way I tr- the way I listened to this commentary, Kyle, was I put I put the disc in the player and had the TV off. Oh. I, I treat it like a podcast because I already have the movie in my head. Oh, yeah, I suppose. So I treat I treat them like a podcast, and it works for me. Okay. But, yeah. I was just saying. You've been trying to watch The Empty Man. I've been for trying how long? to watch The Empty Man for weeks now. Like I just cannot get it in. It's driving me insane. Well, TikTok motherfucker Brad from the Center Speak podcast has been trying to get everybody to watch that. He's like, man, if you're not on it real quick, you're going to be one of those people that shows up late to the party. You're going to lose all credibility because you're going to be one of those horror people who didn't follow the trend and you're behind the times, man. I, it took me a week to watch Hereditary from when I was given 
now I take that very seriously. So as long as it took me to watch Hereditary, because I missed it in the theater. So when I finally watched it, I'm like, fuck, I could have seen that in the theater. I was TikTok, 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 horror moves, horror moves really fucking fast. TikTok, motherfucker. Uh, (laughs) Well, Antlers is coming out this year. It better be. Rantlers! <laughs> uh, let's see Fucking here. Fucking Rantlers. Uh, uh, so we have a couple of scenes playing out kind of parallel to each other. Uh, Bremovich and uh, David have a meeting, and it seems like David is kind of brokering a deal with Bremovich of some sort, uh, which kind of signals to us, the viewer, that, yeah, all those scummy thoughts that you had about David, probably right. Yeah. Um, but parallel to that, we're also planning uh, and preparing uh, to transport... Eddie Marsan, uh, the spyglass, uh, we're planning to help him to defect, uh, to cross the border, essentially. Uh, so both Lorraine and David need to collaborate uh, to do this. And uh, we have a really awesome uh, prepping sequence where they go through like a secret passageway in a, in a subway um, and then head to Bill uh, Skarsgård's hideout in East Berlin, uh, where Eddie Marsan is. And we get to we cut back and forth during this musical montage of uh, between all the parties kind of preparing for this operation where we see the KGB guys, the goon squad that we're introduced to, Bremovich's fellas, including Daniel Bernhardt, uh, getting Ray in like a sniping position. We have Eddie Marsan being instructed to shave his <laughs> moustache uh, for a fake passport photo. Um, and uh, I think David gets himself like a fake military uniform as well. Um, but this is kind of like that the action highlight of the movie, um, which is which makes the build up to it like all the more effective is because the payoff certainly measures up uh, So we get this extensive prepping sequence. And there's a lot of tension being built uh, because like I think there's a, a monkey wrench thrown in the plan at some point in the form of uh, Spyglass's family uh, being involved in the transportation as well. And Lorraine not being aware of that until the very last fucking minute. Uh, we also have the most extensive uh, special effects shot in the entire movie, which is just an overhead shot of a, like a public demonstration going on in the streets of Berlin. Uh, it's basically just a crowd sequence and like just a sweeping CGI shot of, of the city, uh, which obviously they couldn't do because, you know, period film, all the architecture is different and, you know, getting thousands of extras is not exactly cheap um but yeah uh let me think here for a second uh basically all the news reports have been hinting at this that tensions are boiling over in east and west berlin this is why the public demonstrations are happening in the streets um and our heroes take the streets uh, so we're trying to blend in with the crowd with any marsan in tow and then kyle was it uh was it McAvoy that shoots him? Yeah. So here, here, here yeah, we go. Yeah, yeah. So uh, McAvoy is behind uh, Lorraine and uh, Spyglass. He takes the family. Uh, as he's walking, we've got the pieces of shit up in the apartment uh, going to shoot him. And then uh, uh, Skarsgård pops up and uh, everybody, like fucking 100 people have black umbrellas all surrounding them. So now they have no line of sight. So McAvoy is like, oh shit, I didn't know this was going to happen. So he pulls off to the side, rushes over to where there's a car, and uh, because the the sniper's not going to have a clear shot, McAvoy shoots him, like just qu- like just discreetly shoots a, a spyglass. Yeah, uh, so now Eddie Marsan is badly wounded, gets shot in the abdomen, and uh, Charlize Theron has to take him to cover, 
but she gets wise to the fact via a uh, a car like rear view mirror that she tears off and uses it to scout the surroundings that there are snipers posted up above uh and being as he's wounded and now has you know a big splotch of blood on his torso he's he sticks out they're not going to be able to get away so her solution is take the fight to them uh so she escorts him to the building and uh this triggers the action highlight of the movie and i want to say based on some of the director's comments maybe the way this project got fully greenlit like this was almost like a proof of concept kind of thing where this this sequence was presented to charlie's there and it was like hey we think we can do this if you give us like six weeks of prep and she said fucking hey <laughs> let's do it um this is the stairwell sequence that kyle and i have mentioned uh, a few times up to this point uh, and it's very very long uh, there there are I think at least like 20 cuts uh, at least 20 cuts uh, all hidden uh, by like blurs and bodies moving into the like into the center of the frame blocking the view of of, of the action uh, but they're all masked really really well almost none of them are obvious to any extent uh, but I guess that was the concept that the director came at things with uh, he said, I want to do a oneer. Like, obviously, we can't do like over 10 minutes of action with an untrained actress in the <laughs> in the scene. But it, but if we are very, very clever with the choreography and, and the editing, I think we could stitch it together. And Kyle, would you agree? Do you think it's pretty seamless? It is to the point where when we get to the car, I was like, has this been one continuous shot? I didn't rewind, but I'm like, Trevor will tell me. But I, I'm like, I think that was one continuous... I was thinking back to the way that w- way it was shot. I'm like, I think it was one continuous shot. So uh, well, I have some things to say about the car sequence that I really liked. But yeah, this is uh, great. I love the the big dude, the main big dude that she's having to fight. The one that like really gives her trouble. The one that just like stops and falls down the stairs because he finally dies. Oh, so that's the guy with the mutton chops yeah. and the and the tousled hair. Yeah, uh, yeah, he's got a big, big, goofy mustache and mutton chops. It makes him st- it makes him stand out. He seems era appropriate. Um, yeah, he gets shot in the gut like immediately, mm-hmm. and they do such a good job of maintaining the continuity of that particular wound mm-hmm. because every movement he has after the fact is done with the consideration that he has a bullet in his stomach. Yeah. Um, and yeah, when he finally expires, it's not because of like her hitting him with like some thunderous finishing blow. It's no, he got shot in the fucking stomach. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, uh, these two dudes, she's working over pretty good. Um, I like uh, Eddie Marsan is like coming up the stairs and he just gives her like, I thought he was giving her a peace sign. But what he's telling us, there's two more goons. And I was watching this like, you dudes, like you're about to get fucked up. She's warmed up like she is in <laughs> She is warmed up and sweaty. Like, you guys are fucking off off the couch right now. Yeah, apparently the director thought that bit was hilarious. Like, he, it's like a personal favorite moment of, moment of his. Is Eddie Marsan just, like, sheepishly holding up the, the two, two fingers? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, some of the bumps in this sequence with these first two guys. So we got the guy with the mutton chops and a bigger dude with a leather jacket. I'm just gonna, yeah, that is uh, Nikolov because uh, <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's just fucking ru- uh, European villain. That's what he looks like. Y- Ivan Volkov. Yes. <laughs> um, actually, Kyle, uh, not not to name drop too many times, but I believe that's Daniel Hargrave. Was, dude, we are way past like name dropping like you I, you are full you've gone full on chubby like <laughs> well <laughs> well the i mean we we talked about this before we started recording 87 11 is to me as a24 is to kyle yeah um, if i see a24 i'm gonna watch it oh yeah kyle's gonna pop a boner and he's gonna hit the play button immediately pretty much yeah um, same same goes for me in 87 11 but uh, what I wanted to say was Daniel Hartgrave, I suspect, is Sam Hartgrave's brother. They look really similar. Or a cousin, um, yeah, d- easily. Or co- the, he looks like a thicker Sam Hartgrave. But yeah, Mutton Chops is bleeding all over the fucking place. They do some really cool fucking stuff with the prop design in the sequence, Kyle. They, they rebuilt the stairs with foam material and same with the wood paneling on the walls. So it's basically it looks like legitimate, you know, like wood paneling or marble or stone steps. But this is how you can fall down the stairs blind, like just going limp and falling backwards without fucking killing yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no shame in using pads and stunt work. Uh, whatever gets you through the day without fucking dying. But sell me, uh, sell me on like sell me on the the scene. Yeah, yeah, I love the bit where Daniel Hargrave just. He has a bag with the rifle. He was the one with the sniper rifle, and he just throws it at yeah. her. Yeah. <laughs> it's that's, fucking great. That, that's what the other thing that's so great about this sequence is that um, Charlize Theron, like, as this progresses, is just getting wiped out, and she's just like barely hanging on. But it happens with each person where it's like, yeah, this guy's bleeding out, and as, as the fight progresses, he's dying <laughs> little by little. Yeah, see, this is why I was talking about trends in action design. Was that uh, that was one of the things that all the nerds were pointing out and like, you know, jizzing all over the place about with that uh, Netflix Daredevil show. Uh-huh. Was that a lot of people keyed in on the fact that part of what made the choreography really stand out from the crowd in that in that show and that sequence in particular was that they they made sure to show the fatigue. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're going to hang in there, if you're going to do a like a not legitimate one take but like if you're going to create the illusion of a one take like 10 minute action sequence people get fucking tired and as an actor it it aids your performance to be able to express that like it actually aids the narrative well, quite a bit well it actually helps it helps with the character because i yeah. i'm seeing somebody like i know how vulnerable they are at this point or i know how actually strong this person it's not like it's like in uh i'm sorry i'm not trying to bash on you know martial art movies in general but it's generally like the guy who's the toughest is the one that can finish the fight the fastest and he's just like i'm i'm the best one so when you have the showdown between the best one and the chosen one and just going back and forth it's like well okay this is taking forever which one's gonna be triumphant here it's like you can actually see how tough like this big dude that got shot in the stomach this dude's tough if it were me i'd be over there like giovanni rubisi like give me more morphine uh but this guy is like still trying to get his job done but dies doing it yeah no like like there's a different school of action theory uh that i am seeing pop up a lot in superhero movies these days and this is probably the kind of shit that you don't like um aquaman did it hilariously 
where just everybody has Goku strength in that, yeah. where they get thrown through buildings and nobody gets hurt, like no no bruises, no no we, nothing. We just and uh, some of the some of the like MCU movies do that as well, where like people that don't have superpowers can like fall from extraordinary heights and just kind of be okay. <laughs> well, it, I had a problem with it in uh, Captain America: Winter Soldier because he and Bucky, it's like. Um, Captain America is just fucking crushing it the whole time. There's nothing that can stand in his way. But Bucky is the one person who's like a, almost like a worthy adversary. But even still, he's getting hit and it's supposed to hurt him. But he just keeps coming back and like it's doing nothing. So he sh- it just shakes it off like nothing immediately. Um, until, the, you know, the blimp. Until they finally get up to the blimp. Oh, yeah. Until he gets shot like five yes. fucking times. That's, that's, <laughs> oh, bullets. My only weakness. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I hope you don't shit on that movie too bad. Mm-hmm. I legitimately like when I actually I want to apologize. I'll say it on air. I apologize. I actually like Captain America way more uh, going back. I was much more. I think it was my younger years. I was more Tony Stark. I like the hot shot billionaire being cool. As I go back, I'm like, someone needs to fucking put him in his place. And that's why I like Captain. I actually really appreciate Captain America more uh, in the MCU, especially his dynamic with Tony Stark. Put on the suit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, 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 yeah. Maybe it's also because I have I don't have as much experience with Captain America. It was just nice seeing a Marvel movie that I have no well, idea. You, what you heard it here, folks. Kyle has been shitting on Captain America as long as I've known him, and this is the first time I've heard him say anything nice about him. So, yeah, I, I, you don't have to be a fan of him to make me happy. I'm just glad that you, you know, keep an open mind. I appreciate him. Uh, yeah, but um, yeah, sideburns, uh, mutton chops, rather. Uh, he bites the dust. Uh, he just expires from blood loss, essentially. But, oh, my God, this bump he takes is fantastic. Uh, because this is, again, why you have foam stairs. Because he j- he stands up straight, and we cut to Charlie's there. Well, we don't cut, but we just, like, pan over to Charlie's there, and she's, like, ready to fucking go. And then we, like, pan back to him, and he stands up straight, and he just dead man falls limply straight backwards. Back. And that's a live stunt, dude. Like, yeah. there's no CGI. He just, that man just trusted those stairs not to break his fucking it's neck. It's a real low. Uh, we're going to show this town a thing or two. <laughs> like, straight back. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, meanwhile, though, Daniel Hargrave gets knifed to fucking hell. Like, he, get, he gets it in the back, like, twice. Oh, he it's fun. It shoulder. He gets it in the thigh. Um,. I was thinking of another knife scene. Sorry, go ahead. Um, <laughs> um, but the the cherry on top is that like he he still has the knife mm-hmm. in his in his chest. And meanwhile, we're watching the spectacle of a man falling down some stairs, which is always cool. It happens at least three times in this scene, by the way, but most spectacularly here. But anyway, we pan back and he's just like hauling himself up to his feet, and he's like, oh fuck i got a knife in me (laughs) so he pulls it out and tries to use it as a weapon again didn't work out the first time doesn't work out the second time uh she deftly takes the knife from him and stabs it in his throat and uh yeah (laughs) jams it in yeah and then she flips him down the stairs because you know if you can have people fall down the steps three times in the scene why not do it four Uh um she pretty much runs through those two dudes that Eddie Marsan gives her the two, because uh, this is where she gets stuck into the room. Yeah, uh, there was a conscious decision where she goes for the the bag, uh, the rifle bag that was thrown at her earlier. Yeah. <laughs> I, lo- I love the idea of that, yeah. where it's like, you have a gun, 
but you're in such a hurry to fucking kill this bitch it's, that you just throw it instead. It's like that really petty exchange that Tom Sizemore has with the Nazi soldier in Saving Private Ryan where he throws a helmet at him. He's like, well, fuck you. I'll throw my helmet at you. Yeah, and then he gets shot in the thigh. And the son of a bitch. <laughs> it's so good. Just the, this, the stomps. <laughs> the stomps after that. It's like... It's like the same stomps and the son of a bitch you do if you got like tagged out at first in baseball. Yeah. Or something. Son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Son of a bitch. Well, yeah, yeah. That movie's great. It's but so good. Yeah. The conscious decision I was talking about was that uh, she goes for the rifle bag, um, and the stunt coordinator, uh, Sam Hargrave, who is also the camera operator during this entire sequence, so he got to film his own brother getting stabbed in the throat and falling down the stairs. Hey, That's kind of cool. I feel that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was decided that instead of assembling the gun, she'd just use it as a blunt instrument. Yeah. So we get we get to see her just bludgeon this fucking dude in the head and the throat with it. It's pretty great. Um, but yeah, these two stooges, they go down real quick. Uh, there's a there's a throw that she does to this one dude. It's like a... I don't know if it's a jujitsu or a judo takedown, but apparently Charlie's Theron was like really not feeling it. Like She, was, she didn't think she could do it. Mm-hmm. And they got it on camera. It looks fucking fantastic. It's easier than um, you think. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, she caps both of these guys in the head. She disarms one of them using this takedown and uh, shoots both of them in the head. And uh, gets Eddie Marsan back in tow. Uh, but then a couple more guys come in from the bottom floor and they start shooting at her. So the two of them retreat into just an abandoned apartment. Or And uh, she takes cover. <laughs> the director was keen on pointing out that he loves uh, Eddie Marsan's like mincing across the room as he's avoiding gunfire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he thought it was very he was very complimentary of Eddie Marsan's performance. Oh, he's perfect. Um, like he his character, he's perfect at playing this character. Oh, he's great. He's great. Um and just from a body language and physicality standpoint, she she like they measure up well like he's a diminutive little goofy looking guy and she's like a gorgeous tall woman it it looks right you know (laughs) but um the first fellow who walks in here and gets shot in the eyeball uh, apparently is like the office manager of 87 11 nice (laughs) i would show up to set one day to get shot in the face (laughs) like i know as a a non-act kyle's like i know yes i know yes you 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 Uh, would live obviously yes uh but then we get our our finale of the fisticuffs portion of the sequence uh, in the form of a uh, Daniel Bernhardt, uh, the blonde heavy from earlier in the film and 8711's go-to guy uh, having just one hell of a fucking scrap uh, it, with Charlie's Theron. It's like, I don't know if you've gotten this far in Archer. It's like anytime Archer meets Conway, Conway, I can't think of his last name. Uh, the, the black Jewish spy. Have you encountered him? I have not encountered him. Oh, gosh. Uh, he's pretty great. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yes, anytime that they meet, it is a fucking rumble because uh, they hate each other. Uh, but yeah, that, this, this reminded me of the violence in Archer specifically because the violence in Archer is like, holy shit, like for cartoon violence, it's pretty great. Uh, but yes, this is a fucking smackdown, like on both ends. Yeah, this is very much a uh, a hardcore match uh, in wrestling terms. Uh, everything but the kitchen sink. There are no kendo sticks, unfortunately, but every piece of furniture in the room is utilized and or smashed. Uh, one of the highlights is a hot plate. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, did you get the foley? To- <laughs> did you hear the foley uh, artistry on this thing? Oh my god! Every hit in the sequence, Kyle, is just bone shattering mm-hmm. it's, trem- it's tremendous it's tremendous 
um, <laughs> um, but this is where the uh, the fatigue aspect mm-hmm. of the acting and the choreography is put on full display where we're doing a lot of people getting knocked on their asses and uh, we're using we're using those cuts uh, to apply additional layers of makeup to both of our, our players here so Charlize Theron it looks like hamburger yeah. she looks like yeah <laughs> like hammered shit yeah yeah she, she looks like hammered shit and daniel bernhardt who is also a handsome man unto himself also oh he's like he shit. looks like he looks like fucking jared leto in fight club after they destroy after tyler destroys something beautiful he looks like shit very 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 solid comparison i i was going to say no disrespect to the man but they look like Wanderlei silva on a good day, <laughs> if you if you know what that looks like. Did you see Dillashaw, by the way? Uh, I did not see it, but I know the result. Mm-hmm. Uh, he pulled he pulled it out. Mm-hmm. He got it done. Good for uh, him. I don't know how well he got it done, but apparently he got it done. Yeah. Uh, and hopefully he's not cheating anymore. <laughs> that's that's all I'll say about that. But um, yeah, uh, so many foreign imp- foreign instruments are utilized in the sequence. I love the bump that Charlize takes, where she gets just slams into some furniture, mm-hmm. like it just shatters. It's it's really solid work, um, and it all ends with her again uh, using a not a bladed instrument, but I think it's a corkscrew. It's a corkscrew, yes. And uh, she jams it into his like under his jaw, kind of like that guy at the end of the Punisher. <gasps> Uh, <laughs> minus the ooh, ooh. <laughs> I love that you remember that because oh, I, I I love that it's hilarious. It's my favorite part of the whole movie. Uh, but yeah, she, she like throws them down on the ground after that, and they take off running. She and Eddie Marson, and they uh, they hijack a car from a cop. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kyle, you said you had some highlights you wanted to point out here. Yeah, I misremembered. I thought she ran over this guy two times, but uh, the guy she just hit with the corkscrew it tries to ki- uh, tries to get her again in the car, but she just fucking backs up and then runs his ass over. And Eddie Marsan's like, shit. <laughs> 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 but did you notice the camera work in the car? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, it's, it... I, I started to pick up on it. Like, the way it's... Uh, so it's... you. I'm not sure where it starts, but you see uh, the camera's just facing them driving, uh, him driving her in the passenger seat. And we go back, we kind of, does it go forward? Like, how does it roll? It just kind of like circles around like uh, like a 180. And then we get to see her doing stuff, like anticipating stuff in front of her. And then we just keep going back between these two angles, just front of the car, back of the car. So I was very happy to hear uh david leach mention this by name because again this speaks to the humble nature of the man uh he cited children of men as an inspiration uh for the sequence which how could you not like it's obviously cut from the same cloth uh just logistically not in terms of like the content of the sequence or anything but just like in terms of how it was done yeah a lot of the camera movements and like the camera placement in the vehicle they borrowed some ideas from it but yeah, the camera's like posted up in the center of the car, and they're just kind of rotating it uh, wherever is wherever it needs to be pointed to highlight whatever's going on. But from a logistical standpoint, oh my god, they storyboard the shit out of this. Mm-hmm. This is really incredible filmmaking because we're we're doing shit where we're filming some legitimate car stuff, and then we're seamlessly splicing in shots mm-hmm. with CGI elements and green screened properties. And we're hiding cuts everywhere we can, and it all feels pretty genuine. Yeah. Like it doesn't come across as super artificial or, or wonky. You you see moments where you're like, oh, I kind of caught that, but honestly, it's com- there, it, it's there's a 
It's complex. There's a jump cut when yeah. Eddie Marson reaches for a, a med kit in his lab. Yeah. Like, there, there is, like, a noticeable blip, but few and far between. There, uh, of, of the extensive number of cuts that are done in this sequence, no, you really got to be paying attention. No, I mean, once we, like, once we walk out to the protest with, uh, as soon as the umbrellas come up, it's just, it's just continuous awesome until we're in the water. Oh, yeah. No, and, and. This this sequence is kind of the the weird part about this movie for me is that I it's forever crystallized in my memory as just a an awesome moment in action cinema, but the movie built around it I have I I don't exactly know what the fuck it is. Trevor, this this is my problem with every Hong Kong movie you've had me watch. It's like I have no idea what's happening in this movie, and then the last twenty minutes are fighting. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that's that's maybe the downside of growing up and starting my movie collecting habit improper in the DVD era when uh, Chapter Select was an option. Mm. Uh, because I certainly had a lot of VHS movies that I watched a lot when I was younger. I wasn't buying those movies because I didn't have money. I was too young. Uh, but when I was starting to buy movies for myself, it was in the DVD era. And so I could buy shitty movies that had cool moments mm-hmm. and feel good about it. Where it's just like... I'm not buying the whole movie. I'm buying that part of that yeah. movie. Um, so maybe maybe that's just a consequence of growing up in that era. But uh, long story short, a lot of cars are flipped, but not too many because we don't have a whole lot of money. Yeah. Apparently, they had exactly two cars to flip, and well, they had to do it right well, every time. Well, honestly, it doesn't make sense in movies like that where we have just like car after car after car after car. She's trying to be discreet as possible. Like, uh, there's one, like, the scene with the cops, like, she doesn't fire a shot. She specifically doesn't shoot because she's not trying to call more cops. So it makes sense that them, like, responding to this would be very difficult because you have the streets. Like, like you said, there's a CGI rendering of the streets of Berlin are covered with people. Trying to get cars through there is going to be impossible. So it makes sense she only has to deal with two or three cars, just who is ever in the vicinity. Yeah, and that's a huge compliment to pay to the action design, to the stunt coordination, is that we created like a breathless, intense action sequence with a body count of six. six? Yeah, I'd say six. Yeah, so it's not it's not like a shooting gallery action sequence. It's like, no, we, we had just a couple of goons that were more than a fucking handful. No, that's boring. You give me two or three, like her like turning around and shooting the driver's side of that car like three times and you just see it just swerve a little bit and then just fucking hit another car. I'm like, that's good. That's that's perfect. Just little things like well, that. Well, and also this is coming in the aftermath of, you know, a life and death tooth and nail struggle with a whole apartment complex full of dudes and she's kind of done. Yeah. And also, also the entire plan has gone tits up 10 minutes ago so this is like it's apt that uh i ran or whatever the i the, the yeah. flock of seagulls flock song of seagulls. is playing over the sequence like i don't have a plan like there's that really awesome beat where they they focus on her and we see her her one eye is totally bloodshot and again looks like Vanderlei silva <laughs> and she just looks at a marson and she looks like the fucking devil like yeah. with the the devil after eating a shovel to the face <laughs> but still kind of hot because Charlie's there and, and she just tells him very calmly, put your seatbelt on. Yeah. <laughs> but what's kind of neat about that beat is that it's funny, but at the same time, it's like, this is 
this is her in full on just like spy facade mode. She doesn't fucking know what she's doing. No, she, like she's just driving and hoping for the best. She, yeah, she's hoping for an archer move. It's like honestly, things just kind of work out for me. Like she's just hoping. <laughs> she's just hoping things work out. Uh, yeah, so she uh, she stops at the end of this roadway where there is uh, a river with no guardrail. Um, and this car just comes out of nowhere and just fucking boom, just blasts him into the water. Um, she's trying to save Eddie Marsan, but his leg is caught. Um, it, I don't know if we told, we did mention this, that he's memorized the watch, so it's very important that they get the watch and him. Uh, unfortunately, she does not get him out in time, and he does drown. Um, yeah, his death scene is, again, Eddie Marsan's a fantastic actor, uh, very good at generating empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, because he has very few lines in this film, but just the way he carries himself and the way he looks, you feel bad about him dying like this. But in Deadpool 2, exact opposite. He's a little piece of yeah. shit in that movie. <laughs> yeah. He's an actor. Actor. All credit to Eddie Marsan. <laughs> He's an acting. Uh, yes. And, um, oh, I was going to say, we uh, we get David with the family, and they're, uh, they've managed to get the family over safe, which I was happy to see. I'm like, at least they got the family out. Um, but there's an exchange between... Um, between John Goodman and uh, James McAvoy where he's just like uh, so I guess um, Lorraine ran into some problems but she's still alive and he's like oh I uh, didn't know that um, and I don't really know what the exchange is beyond that uh, I think it's just we see that James McAvoy has mixed feelings about her still being alive yeah. maybe he was hoping that she would bite the dust and you know get out of his hair forever Uh and also, John Goodman expresses some dissatisfaction with the fact that, hmm, yeah. Spyglass is dead, huh? <laughs> like, that's like half the fucking mission. Yeah. Good job, ass. <laughs> um, but uh, Lorraine gets uh, saved by Bill Skarsgård. Yeah. Uh, he finds her on the street after she gets out of the river. Uh, there's a really good cut, by the way, of her get like getting out of the car in the water. And then when she comes up for air, we immediately like hard cut back to her in the interrogation room. So it's a good beat, but uh, yeah, Bill Skarsgård uh, gets her out of East Germany, so she gets back to her t- hotel, and we see her tossing the place looking for microphones, apparently. Um, and Delphine shows up at some point, and she—I don't really remember what's said it's here, like, other than it's like uh, this, we, you got, you got to go, yeah, lady. It's like this life, <laughs> you, you know, like you and I both know this lifestyle is not uh, good for relationships. So yeah, she's basically like breaking up with her. Like you got to get the fuck out of here. Um, and I think does James McAvoy he's on he calls Del, uh, Delphine. Um, yeah. yeah, he he calls Delphine, and it's basically made known that he knows some things that maybe she was hoping he didn't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular, maybe that she's been talking to Lorraine, um, which leads to uh, her again having just recently been urged by Lorraine to just get the fuck out of Berlin. Uh, really cool setting, by the way. Uh, kind of our last night in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically the the wall is beginning to come down. Like the citizens are in are in uproar and people are hammering at the wall and there's fireworks going off. Really awesome lighting all over the place. Just it's at night. There's fireworks. Uh, there's sounds of jubilation and champagne bottles being popped. Meanwhile, uh, Delphine is like alone in her apartment and. Uh, David comes for her uh, wearing a ski mask and uh, they have a little scrap. Uh, he tries to moita her. Um, 
Yeah. Oh, he does. Uh, but he, yes, he is trying to murder her. But I think this is where those those extra scenes of uh, of uh, Sofia Botello like developing her a little bit more and having a little bit more empathy for her would make this scene hurt a bit more. But the the way the tone shifts in this is really dark. Like this is a, actually a really dark sequence because yeah, uh, McAvoy. She's she, by the way, it's fucking winter or some kind of cold. It's January in fucking Germany. Uh, it's cold, and she's got the fucking just the the French doors just open. Like she's just got the fucking balcony doors open, and uh, he just walks right in and uh, tries strangling her. Um, but she manages to uh, pull out a knife, and she ends up stabbing him, I think, in the chest or the side, and then she gets it right into his shoulder blade. And this is actually pretty funny, because he's, like, in a- good acting on him, too, because he's, like, in agony, trying his hardest to get this out. And she's, you know, disoriented from just being, you know, nearly choked, trying to get her composure. Um, and I don't did you did you find him, like, trying to get the knife out kind of comical? This is why I say I I want to see this man do an action heavy role because uh, like his acting with the knife in his back is it's tremendous mm-hmm. like like he he just it's comical but it's also genuine yeah which which makes it really really work like he puts on a fucking show trying to pull this knife out of himself meanwhile it's an intense moment where he's up to no good and it's still the emotionality of the sequence doesn't feel out of place like it 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 strikes the right balance and yeah seeing him put his head down on the yeah. table and to like get, to, ba- get to like find his balance and find the right angle is i'm sure that was just an improvised acting choice that just pays off so so great and uh he whacks her with a phone by the way yeah. an 80s phone yeah an 80s rotary phone yeah. <laughs> that'll do it that'll chip uh, a tooth yeah oh yeah yeah but um yeah he ultimately does finish the job and and kills her it's a fucking brutal Um, strangling too it's just like we we, it's not like you just see her like face down the pill like we watch the life drain out of her that's why i was like it's a very dark scene so it's very funny in one minute and then watching this poor girl who by the way i don't know if you've like uh those of you haven't seen her like she is a tiny little thing like james mcavoy is not big but he's just like throwing this tiny woman around so it's just like it's really brutal yeah, uh, this this felt like like a traditional like noir almost almost has like a giallo kind of feel to it or something. Mm. It 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 feels like something in a more traditional spy movie or something. Yeah, because because a lot of this is like very non traditional, very of its own type kind of movie. But this this felt like something that was in the first draft of the script or something. Um, and yeah, it's brutal, it's intense, and uh, it's made even worse by the fact that Charlize Theron is like at the doorbell like yeah she's but she's trying to get buzzed into the apartment while this is all going down um but yeah she doesn't get entry into the building and uh we see that david is scuttling his entire operation uh he like sets fire to his his (laughs) levi's warehouse (laughs) slash dude cave (laughs) yeah i actually really like this uh i generally don't like the fourth wall being broken in movies unless it's like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where it's like it's just part of the movie that's happened throughout. That's how it starts. But he has this like this dialogue that's kind of uh, spliced up with Charlize Theron. I think kind of in the apartment or her. Oh, it, it's a it's a monologue, man. He's he is taking a walk. <laughs> um, but he's I guess he's kind of just talking about life as a spy. I guess it's just it's tough or whatever. But his his finishing line in this monologue is uh, I've 
fucking love Berlin. And it's his delivery is great, but I was thinking about him as a character. I'm like, yeah, you have this guy who's MI6, generally, I would assume, to be like a spy or any kind of, like, just to work for the FBI. You have to have a clean fucking record. You have to be a fucking square just to get like an internship with those people. I'm assuming working for MI6 is something along those lines. So you have, you've thrust this person who has been a square their entire life and very, probably very strict military training. And you're just thrust into chaos where you can, like, it's just mob. It's just, I can pay off this person to get whatever I want. I get to live this lifestyle. And I can see him getting wrapped up in it and just be like, this is fucking great. I don't want to be a spy anymore. Yeah, no, that that's what they meant by saying he went native. Yeah. Like, the first shot we see him in is him wearing, like, wearing a big poofy like the prodigy coat um, and hanging out with the the punk youth movement in east berlin like he he is king of the underworld yeah but the the irony is is now it's over like now it's about to end and uh yeah but when he says i love berlin i'm like i believe him (laughs) i think he really does love it again all credit to him as an actor because the the line delivery and the fact that he's off screen until that last bit of it Mm mm-hmm um, just that one shot of him, the emotionality on his face and the tone in which he says that line, it has a sense of finality to it mm-hmm. where he knows he's about to die. Yeah. But it's it's him basically saying that, you know, like I wouldn't have done it any other way. Yeah. Like if I had it if I had the choice, fuck, you know, whatever. Yeah. I am what I am. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, she shoots him. We have a very noirish moment and mm-hmm. ends in silent gunfire, just like one shot in the dark and he's down um and she kind of interrogates him and i think it's during this exchange that we we the viewer learn that he is not in fact satchel yeah as as we were led to believe i didn't realize that the first time i watched this i might have been just kind of zoning out near the end but i'm like obviously he's satchel but i actually have in my notes i'm like wait is she satchel because i still wasn't sure at this point because the dialogue exchange i'm like oh interesting yeah that that's uh i think again maybe a little bit of a problem with the structure of the movie is that the story is hard to follow and then we have this absolutely breathtaking action beat that happens a little bit before the end Mm -hmm. such that you're a little bit just like trying to catch your breath like you're you're slightly disengaged because you're just like what the fuck did i just see that was awesome i want more of that but there's no more of that because we did all of that, yeah. but there's still more movie left. So what are we doing? <laughs> this is like, oh, complex plot stuff? I'm not ready for that. No. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, uh, long story short, he is executed by her, and yes, it's revealed that she was Satchel the whole time, not him, even though all, all the breadcrumbs were kind of pointing towards him throughout the entire movie. But that's where the interrogation room scenes are uh, kind of an aid to the the type of narrative we're trying to structure here um but yeah uh it's upon learning that uh that he was a traitor i guess uh, because she supplies them in the interrogation room with photos of uh david meeting with bremovich aka the kgb um that they just kind of like say cut it we're done here Mm -hmm. um but it's during the sequence where she's throwing david under the bus uh that we see her uh, splicing together audio mm-hmm. uh, on a on a like a reel to reel or a cassette tape of like samples of his dialogue with her throughout sprinkled throughout the entire movie and she's constructing a false narrative about 
the relationship between him and Bremovich. Uh, so basically, she's covering her tracks. So it turns out she was she was the one doing all the satchel stuff throughout the entire film, not him. Uh, and now he's dead. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the interrogation is called to a halt, and she's free to go. And we cut to several days later in Paris, in Paris, uh, where she has a meeting with Bremovich, and now she's got brown hair. Mm-hmm. Not entirely sure why, but she got brown hair, and she meets up with our our Danish gentleman, uh, Bremovich Roland Muller, I believe it's how it's pronounced. And uh, do you remember how this scene went down, Kyle? Yeah, this is. I don't know. I thought this was kind of sloppy. Like this, just this... it. It feels like an afterthought. Yeah. to be honest. Yeah, this wasn't that great. Uh, yeah, so she goes into this uh, room with uh, the German guy or whatever, um, and there's like an exchange. Is it, it's clear that she was working for him or working with him, and she's like, "I thought you were gonna kill me," and clearly that's exactly what's gonna happen. But she presents the watch. Like she said in the interrogation, like, "Well, where's the watch?" And she's like, "I don't know. I don't know where it's at." So we're led to believe that she's giving him the watch, and then uh, he walks outside, and then a group of dudes come in with uh, uh, rubber gloves and a tarp, basically. And this is that yeah, guy. They, from... they try to give her the Patrick Bateman treatment. Yeah. Uh, he's just like, the guy says, won't you be a professional and go stand on the tarp, or go stand on the plastic, basically. Uh, she doesn't do that, by the way. She has got a gun hidden in the ice, and uh, yeah. It's a shootout. It's a shootout. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a shootout. it's a shootout. Yep, it's a shootout. Yeah, it just um, it just felt lazy. There's some slow motion, uh, but it's also like two dude, two or three dudes, really. Yeah, apparently they wanted David Bowie to be involved in the film, uh, aside from just the music. He but didn't. Yeah, he died like just like a couple. He, he turned it down, but then he died. Yeah, <laughs> but he was probably because he was busy dying. He was dying. Yeah, he was busy dying. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a it's a shootout in a movie that didn't generally have this kind of action in it. Mm-hmm. But eighty seven eleven, as evidenced by the John Wick films, certainly has quite a bit of experience, uh, especially with like handgun choreography. Um, but this is the like the only action sequence in the entire film that makes extensive use of like gaudy old school slow motion. Yeah, and it just feels kind of wonky, I guess. Yeah. Um. And even even like just the set dressings and the lighting, it just feels like maybe this was a reshoot or something. Yeah, he's kind of a loose end because you literally could have just left it at she had the watch and got on the plane with John Goodman. Like that that would have been it. It'd just be like, oh, she was working for the CIA the whole time. I suspect maybe this was like a a case of like working from the slasher movie timeline where it's like we had that super awesome action beat, that really long one, but there's too much time between that and the end of the movie that we we feel like we, the producers, more than likely feel like there needs to be just like one something like one last victory lap to send the viewers home happy. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it's not it's not the best action scene in the movie it is very bloody i will give them that mm-hmm. that's kind of cool but but um uh Bremovich eats a bullet to the throat and she uh, explains to him and us the viewer that she was posing as she's she doesn't say she's cia here but basically she confesses that she's mi6 and kgb and she was kind of like playing both sides against the middle but as we'll learn at the very 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 end of the movie she's actually cia playing all of those other sides against each other yeah uh so bremovich and her the reason why they had that 
that very strange double speak conversation in the bar earlier is that they were she was working in his employee uh and it was just like a cheeky meeting between the two of them that us the viewer were just like i don't even know i don't even fucking know what's going on here but in the context of the end of the film it makes more sense but we see that uh she has a support system here during this finale which again plays over david bowie and queen or queen and david bowie whichever way you want to put it uh of her like taking off her wig and i guess symbolically this is her allowing herself to be herself for the, f- the first time in the entire movie because um, she's been putting on different identities throughout the entire movie um, and uh, mirrors are actually a motif that we didn't talk about in the movie but there's a lot of uses of reflections throughout the entire movie that really hammer home this point that's really obvious to begin with but uh, she has a support crew in the form of uh, Bill Skarsgård to clean up the hotel and uh, a uh, to drive her to her private jet, uh, which has John Goodman in it. And uh, you want to play us home, Kyle? <laughs> yeah, she uh, drops her accent, and she's just speaking with him with an American accent. Um, that's that's all I got. I just I took it as she was working for the CIA. Yeah, that that was my understanding, is that her true identity is that she's a CIA operative, and uh, they have kind of a a wink to the audience in the form of her giving him the watch and him just casually like flipping it in his hand and putting it in his coat pocket. Mm-hmm. It's just like, was this really for any real reason? Like what was the plot of this movie at all important? It's like, no, not really. <laughs> it's like, not really. Like it got, it got us a movie, didn't it? Yeah. It's like, oftentimes that's, that's the joke with MacGuffins is like, does it really matter? Like Pulp Fiction, does it really matter what's in the suitcase? No. You got a movie out of it, didn't you? Yeah. Shut up. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's 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 Atomic Blonde. It ends like that. And uh, as Kyle and I had said, a sequel would be welcome. However, we're starting to get into that territory where enough time has passed that, you know, maybe, maybe Atomic Blonde can stand alone and just be a good movie unto itself with no sequels. I'm fine with that. I'm totally fine with that. Um, but yeah, this was uh, directed by David Leach out i don't think i said his name as often as i did sam hargrave but (laughs) but but uh i generally like him as a film director um he has a he has a a kind of a big one coming out called bullet train it's currently in production it's due out next year um he also worked on uh nobody but only as a producer that that movie i have mixed feelings about it is an 87 11 crew movie so it does have some inspired action but it's a little bit hit and miss. It's not on the same production quality level as something like this. But I look forward to more uh, David Leach movies because uh, I do think he's a pretty solid filmmaker on the whole. Um, and apparently Kyle l- likes a few of his movies. John Wick, Atomic Blonde, Deadpool 2. Yeah. Not bad. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, this uh, draws a close to Ladies Night, uh, our July event. Um do you want to disclose right off the bat what we're going to be doing next month, or are we still thinking on that? Uh, yeah, I think we've uh, we've got it uh, we got it clutch, but we'll let the people figure it out next month. All right. Well, uh, as we said again, uh, this was Atomic Blonde from 2017, directed by David Leach, and of course headlined by Charlize Theron. Uh, and uh, that's about that. Mm-hmm. So. In the meantime, though, if you'd like to catch up on any of our other Catching Up on Cinema content, you can find all of that collected on our website at catchinguponcinema.com. 
Uh, we also have a couple of social media accounts in the form of an Instagram at Catching Up on Cinema, as well as a Twitter at Catching Cinema. So feel free to hit me up either of those. And the show is available on pretty much any podcasting platform you can imagine, including Cephalopod. So fucking Google it. Google it. Uh, but that being said, thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. It's ladies' night, and the feeling's right. Oh, yes, it's ladies' night. Oh, what a, oh, what a night. Oh, yes, it's ladies' night.